I'm Chris McDonough, a retired homicide detective. I've interviewed thousands of people, from serial killers to ministers. Welcome to the interview room. Welcome to the interview room, everybody. Time to take a seat. Have we got a program for you tonight? Always coming to you from an undisclosed location and all parties discussed here are innocent in a court of law until proven guilty. Tonight's show, we're gonna discuss the mass murder of four students Idaho in Idaho at the university. And tonight's guest, we have a panel of renowned experts. First, I want to uh, let everybody know how grateful we are for you subscribers and your members, our new Patreon members, Claire, Nicholas, Jody, and Deborah would thank you. But you are in for a treat this evening uh, where you're gonna be able to ask your own questions, as well as have a delightful discussion with uh, some amazing people. Tonight's panel uh, consists of, uh, and I am grateful to have this uh, panel uh, put together here this evening but, and call them friends. Uh, we are all on the Cold Case Foundation. And as you can see, uh, some are wearing their swag and, and Anne's in her uh her Christmas sweater, which I know she's going to win uh, whatever uh, prizes are coming her way. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about this panel uh, that's been assembled here this evening, everybody. Uh, first of all, I want to welcome Dr. Ann Burgess uh, in the middle there. We're honored to have Ann with us again. Uh, the highly acclaimed Netflix series Mindhunter was based on the fictional character of Dr. Wendy Carr directly off the very real Ann Burgess. Um, and Ann is currently a Boston College professor. She's a pioneer in assessing and treating trauma victims. She uh, and FBI agent John Douglas developed a new type of criminal profiling of notorious serial killers when the Behavior, unit, behavior Science Unit or first originated. She and John collaborated for over a decade. John Douglas wrote about their work in his renowned book, Mindhunter, inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. His book was the basis of the fictionalized Netflix series, Mindhunter. John was one of, the, one of those writers, as well as Anne participated in assisting in that series. The TV series ran from 2017 to 2019, and it got amazing rave reviews internationally. 
we're thrilled again this evening, and I'm thrilled that she's here and to call her a friend, uh, to have one of the original mine hunters this evening, Dr. Ann Burgess. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Also, internationally renowned, renowned Dr. Gary Brucato, who's taking the upper right-hand corner here this evening. Uh, this is almost like Hollywood Squares, I would call it. Uh, Dr. Brucato is a clinical psychologist, researcher, and author in the areas of psychotic illness and violence. He has over 20 years of experience in clinical uh, research as well as clinical experience in his office. He was additionally trained in a private forensic practice, learning to conduct evaluations for civil and criminal courts. Dr. Bracato is a visiting scholar at Boston College, where he collaborates with Dr. Ann Burgess and Victor Petreka. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Uh, on forensic research. He is currently serving as a consultant on a grant-funded project, analyzing murders involving asphyxiation by strangulation and other means. Uh, Dr. Bracato is a full-time practitioner private practice has a full-time private practice in new york city he also co-wrote co the book the new evil understanding the emergence of modern violent crime this guy in dr burgess between the two of them the and the next guy i'm going to read here uh everybody might as well just get your popcorn and take your seat because you are on the interview from here this evening uh i cannot wait to hear what they talk about. Welcome, Dr. Bricado, this evening. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Okay, in the upper left-hand corner for $50, uh, and is my buddy and dear friend, the executive director of the Cold Case Foundation, uh, Mr. Greg Cooper. Greg was an FBI profiler, uh, and he is an expert in criminal profiling, as well as prescriptive interviewing and interrogation investigations and multi-agency investigative task force consulting. He has met with some of the best in the world. He and Ann and Gary go way back, uh, back into the John Douglas days uh, and, and further. Uh, he is a police trainer instructor and also a university and college professor. Uh, Greg has given expert testimony based on his work in serial crimes and of course, crimes involving homicides, uh, essay, kidnapping, and more. He's a very accomplished expert in this area. Greg has given expert testimony uh, based on work in serial crimes and crimes uh, involving the uh, crime set that I just mentioned. He is also an accomplished author and co-author of the Crime Classification Manual, a landmark book classifying homicide, arson, essay, and others. His work as, as an expert witness in crime scene analysis was highlighted in the New York Best Times, uh, New York Times bestseller, and as well, Mindhunter, uh, inside the FBI Elite Serial Unit by John Douglas. Welcome, Greg, to the program this evening again, buddy. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. And by the way, these are short bios, everybody. If you're just joining us, these are very short. So we're gonna we're gonna get to the you know, you, you can look them up. Their bios are below in the Cold Case Foundation. And then, of course, the Assistant Executive Director of Cold Case Foundation, my friend, my dear uh, colleague, uh, Dean Jackson. 
Uh, he's a member of the Utah Critical Incident Stress Management Team and is a credited instructor for the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. He's a violent crime specialist and provides training for law enforcement agencies across the uh, United States. Agencies on homicide, uh, in those agencies, homicide teams, missing teams, and of course, unidentified bodies, SA, cold case investigations, and stress management uh, uh, in relation to death notifications for not only law enforcement, uh, but first responders in terms of their trauma uh, post uh, those kind of problems. So each and every one of these distinguished guests here this evening um, has a book. And if you uh, want to, uh, I would encourage you at the end of the show, go down to the show notes below. You will see each of their books are linked. And I would encourage you to go purchase those books and really get to know our panel in a more in-depth and personal level. Uh, that said, we have a an amazing, um, sensitive problem going on in um, Idaho currently. And as we all know, during this chat tonight, we want to remain classy. Uh, as well as, as I like to say, above, above the line. And um, so keys, keep your comments, you know, don't name people, uh, put initials. Uh, we want to be sensitive to not only the families, uh, but in honor of the victims, we want to pay attention to what we say and how we say it without speculation, without guessing, we, because everything we say potentially could impact the surviving families, and we want to be considerate of those families uh, throughout the evening. So we as a, as a panel and as a team from this side are going to try to make sure that we uh, are leading by example for each of you as you put your uh, comments uh, in the chat. Uh, so that said, all right. I'm going to start ladies first, okay? Because it's because Anne, you have the most amazing sweater uh, going, and um, and then uh, Dr. Bacato, Greg, Dean, just like we did as we always do, open discussion. Uh, you know, bring your expertise to the table, and uh, I am just going to sit here uh, in total fascination, ready to learn. Uh, myself something new. I know I know I will this evening. So I have a couple of questions. My my first question is going to be, uh, given what we know, uh, so there's a background noise apparently coming. I, everybody knows that, uh, and I'm not sure where it's coming from. But my, I'm getting all these notes. The panel, somebody has a open mic, but um, I can't help that right now, and so I need to. Uh, ask a couple of questions. Well, the first question, given what we know at this point uh, about these uh, horrific homicides, what kinds of personalities surface in relationship to the crime that we uh, are seeing to date without the knowledge of what the dynamics are in the house, you know, and the victimology in relationship to the wound types, that kind of stuff. But Let's just kind of, I want to open it up to open discussion 
on uh, what kind of personalities surface in these types of crime. And uh, Anne, why don't you why don't you start us off this evening? Sure, happy to. Well, when we look at this case, what do we know? What do we hear? And again, we're only going on information that has been released uh, very little. But this is a case where, and from the victim's standpoint, it's a blitz style. A blitz style means that there is no prior interaction before. In other words, victim and offender don't talk, don't do anything. And it's in the middle of the night. It's in a room that we presume is dark. We've had no information that lights were on or anything like that. So we want to ask, well, what type of personality would do this that would uh, take a very vulnerable victim, two victims actually, and kill them as they did in a matter of hours. So it's not someone that's going to be very extrovert, in my opinion, because it's not like a Ted Bundy kind of thing. And I have to go on the data that I have, which was with serial killers uh, and the ones that we looked at. And that that tells me that it's not going to be someone that's really good inter that interacts that well with, with people. So I suspect and would say that he's isolated. I think it's a he. I do not think it's a she. Um, and has to have complete control over a victim that's sleeping and is in the most vulnerable position, is in bed, sleeping, so to speak. So from a personality standpoint, um, I would say that's where I would start. Okay. And that's one point. So. I, okay. I and uh, somebody, uh, if we could mute, everybody kind of mute. Let's see where this is uh, coming from. We're getting some feedback the audience is saying. All right. Is that you, Greg? I think it's you. No, no. I think it may be Anne. Anne, can you mute for a second? Just to, we'll, we'll narrow this down real fast. No big deal. How do I mute? Up here? Uh, you can go on the bottom. You'll see the toolbar and the yeah. mute button on the left. I got it. Okay. Hello, hello. Ah, it's you, Anne. You win. Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, when you talk, we can unmute, and then uh, while everybody else is talking, we'll mute again. Okay, perfect. So, uh, Dr. Pucratos, what say you uh, in relationship to uh, dovetailing into Anne's comments? Well, I try to do this briefly because there are really a lot of things to say about this. And I think it is very important uh, that we emphasize that we're operating in the dark without autopsy photos and, um, you know, a lot of other surveillance camera, you know, images and all kinds of other things that would be very valuable here. Um, but that having been said, I think it's important to point out that what we're dealing with here by any definition, whether it be the FBI crime classification manual definition or the less conservative um, um, definition one sees in the literature on mass murder, we're dealing with a mass murderer here. This is somebody who killed four victims at one time in one location. We have no reason to believe yet uh, that this is somebody who went on to kill again, killed in close proximity in time to the offense, killed before with any kind of cooling off period. Now, I can tell you, I was the the, the lead author on, uh, along with Dr. Raghi Gurgis, we, we co-created um, the Columbia Mass Murder Database during my time at Columbia Medical Center. 
that's to my knowledge the largest study done to date of mass murder worldwide and i think it, it gives a little bit of information that might be helpful here um what we found is that um it really what really matters is the weapon and um the fact that we're dealing with a, a mass murder that involves something other than a gun is very critical so turns out from that very large data set that when we're looking at the use of a weapon other than a gun, the likelihood that we're dealing with somebody who has some odd characteristics that might be considered to be on the spectrum of being authentically disturbed is greatly increased, significantly increased. However, there is also a subset of people who use weapons other than guns that do so because they have a lot of the psychopathic characteristics like we see in people that are more likely to be serial offenders. Now, I will say that about 11.78% of the people in our database did in fact turn out to commit mass murder as part of a wider pattern of serial killing, but we don't know yet what's going to go on here. Now, my guess based on the data is that this is a person that I do believe is male, 97% of mass murderers are male, we found. I do not believe that this is somebody who operated with another person because I think by definition, this is an odd person who would have difficulty establishing relationships. I imagine this to be a person who would live a very restricted mechanical existence with a temper, a little bit of a paranoid quality that you would stay away from because you would sense that they were peculiar and that they were a little hot-headed, and a person that could really hold a grudge for a long time. I believe, uh, based on the data that we have, that we're looking at one of two things. Uh, if this is a person who snapped emotionally and didn't committed an impulsive kind of mass murder, then a knife would be chosen simply because it was around, and it's sort of like some of the mass murders we see, for, you know, like in China, for example. There's a phenomenon where a mother, let's say, who is depressed, possibly psychotic, picks up a blade and goes to a school and kills children because she's in despair about her own life, that kind of thing. But the other thing you see are people who would choose a knife because of its intimacy with the victims, because of the enormous amount of pain that it would give, because of its possible symbolic sexual quality um, because the person sees himself as delivering justice, a kind of a hunter figure who goes in like a mission. And what seems to distinguish between these more impulsive mass murders and these people that are more psychopathic is that there isn't the impulse component. They methodically monitor have a grudge and plan to go in. And what I envision is a person who would treat this evening, you know, this morning, early morning killing, the way we would think about a major event in our lives, like a wedding or having a child or something. It was like D-Day that went in after a period of probably stalking, you know, watching and committed this act in a kind of an explosion of, of you know, frenzy, right? Um, but this is not a person who you would picture afterwards to say, to have regret or to say, why did I do this? But a person who would feel a very great deal of satisfaction. Uh, we also have to picture an individual who did so probably in the dark, unless he had some kind of military equipment or a headlight on his head or something. But I think that figures into this too. 
Because remember, there is no overt sexual quality to this crime. There may be an undertone of it and um, was certainly somebody who contributed to the literature meaningfully about how there can be sub, you know, undertones of sexuality in some of these people. Um, but, but what it looks like is that this might have been motivated more by some kind of anger or grudge or resentment or misogyny or envy, something like that. Um, and somebody who did so after a cool-headed reflection that they wanted to do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so um, the sexual component is important because if it's missing, then what you're probably looking at is somebody driven by a wound to the ego. Now, my final point I'll make is that um, when you have some of these ego-driven killers, you notice that a lot of them do their killing from behind the curtain or in the dark. Uh, I think that's very important that this was done in the dark. Think, for example, of the serial killer Robert Hansen, who hunted women in the forest, shooting them from behind in the dark. That's because if they turned around and saw him, he was just a little nobody. But from behind and in the dark, he was everything. He was a god. And I think that that's important because for some of these people, like you'll notice that with serial killers, for example, where there's no overt sexual component, a lot of them will do things like write to the police and boast and seek attention and enjoy that they're slithering underneath you like a serpent that could strike at any time. The ego ultimately catches them, too. It's their undoing. But the ego drives a lot of it. And I suspect that ego figures very heavily into this case and that this is somebody who feels he was basically terrifying everybody and enjoys uh, sitting back and saying, now all the women of the world are terrified that... Uh, I could strike at any time. Uh, in other words, this person doesn't know if he is everything or nothing. Is he a god or is he a nobody? But in the dark, committing those crimes, I imagine he felt something like the deliverer of, a, of justice. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, fascinating. Greg, uh, weigh in here, your opening statement uh, to this particular challenge. Sure. Um, I think f first, as a, uh, the first comment would be, I think we're all functioning at a disadvantage uh, in terms of coming up with uh, a full puzzle, what the puzzle may look like, because we're, we're missing a number of those pieces of the puzzle that would help us fill them in. Uh, so to some extent, um, some of the detail, particularly as it relates to personality characteristics, uh, some of the detail is somewhat restricted uh, and we're at a disadvantage because we don't know the level and the amount and the nature of the behavior between the victims and the offender um, within each of those crime scenes um, and particularly each of the victims. Um, I like to look at it from the perspective of uh, it is a highly personal crime because of the selection of, as, as have already been identified, uh, the selection of the weapon. and. What you have here is a, an expression, a communication process that's occurring between the offender to those victims. Those victims represent something to them, very personal. Uh, and the nature of those wounds uh, become a, a reflection of the level of thought and uh, emotion uh, and feelings that are being experienced by the offender. And they're being transmitted into, if you will, into those victims 
for whatever their reason is. Is there and, a terminology for that? Uh, uh, you know, is there a psychological terminology for for that behavior transferring itself into the victim? Well, I, I think you could use transference. I, uh, Dr. Bricado may have uh, something much more professional <laughs> as it relates to, to that diagnosis. But uh, from my perspective, it's a transference. It's a transference of thoughts, feelings, and emotions uh, that they come, that it, it has come before, that the pre-offense behavior um, that has developed over time, I don't think it's one of these uh, random opportunistic crimes uh, in this particular case. He's not just walking through a neighborhood and comes and commits a burglary and comes across these these victims. I think that it's much more personal than that. That they've been pre-selected, maybe not all of them. I think at least one is he's been fixated to some degree by at least one. Most likely, I say that because again, we don't have that communication uh, that's manifested at the crime scene by the offender. We don't have the detail. So uh, again, we're working at that disadvantage. But uh, for whatever reason, the selection of those victims suggests to me uh, some pre-contact, at least at, at the observation level, <clears throat> if not some interaction that between the victim and the offender. And the victim may not even be, be aware <clears throat> of that interaction, per se. It may, may not have, uh, for them, been any any significant interaction that they may have had with this offender. But to the offender, it becomes very significant. And they represent symbolically somebody to them, uh, a significant person in their lives, typically female, uh, and maybe a dominant female in their lives, um, or may represent something to the uh, extent that um, they're a preferred type of individual they may want to have a relationship with but for whatever reason it didn't develop uh, they're not comfortable in pursuing going back to this issue of the uh, interpersonal relationships i think he it's the more of the type of offender that is on the outside looking in uh, personality meaning and uh, they may have a preference in terms of the type of individual they'd like to interact with and have uh, a certain level of relationship with but but they're not comfortable in pursuing it and there may be some question about their interpersonal skills and in, in interacting with that type of personality um, so i would say that the individual is familiar with at least one of those victims uh, the, the thought that um, we do know that at least a couple of those victims uh, attract a lot of attention, uh, it, it appears, out there on the, the social media. And they're very outgoing, very friendly, it appears, and, and uh, they're very attractive. So it may represent a certain type of victim and person to this offender. Uh, and, and it can range anywhere from a very personal knowledge to um, a symbolic group. Uh, that may mean something to that offender. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, and, <clears throat> uh, and Dean, if it's okay with you, you and I kind of weigh in on the investigative analysis side of this. I want to keep this conversation going, if it's okay with you, 
uh, with you know the psychological analysis uh, above us here, uh, because that was just question number one, and I I just gleaned a, a tremendous amount of information. So I want to dovetail while we're still on this, you know, wavelength here uh, on the psychology side of things. Um, could there be more than one killer? And Anne, we'll start with you, your thought process. Uh, you're muted. You're muted. That's okay. That's all right. I hope yeah, I do that. All, I do that all back. the time. See if that yeah. noise comes back. Uh, there certainly could be anything's possible, but it really looks, in my opinion, like it's one person. To have two people, or more than, unless it was like a gang. I mean, sometimes you hear these horrendous things on gangs, but it doesn't in any way seem to have that that uh, part to it. So I would say it's one person who has had the house under surveillance or had the um, the victims under surveillance and, and knows to some degree what, what their routine is, so to speak, uh, that he has planned it. I absolutely agree with what, what Greg has said, has planned it. Um, and, and the dark is very important. I think Gary really emphasized that, that he commits this in the dark uh, has a certain uh, importance to it that he can't see, doesn't want to see, uh, or I don't know, turns the lights on. We don't even know that if the lights get turned on at any point in this. Uh, it seems hard unless there was the moon out. I, I don't know whether they have um, checked on how, how bright was it outside. I'd like to know that. So sometimes you can get a very full moon and, and get some light coming in. But he had to have known enough about these uh, plate, the uh, location of the rooms to get where he, he got to and um, at least get to two floors. Why didn't he just, that he let two of the victims go on the first floor? Why didn't he let one of the victims' rooms go? We, we don't know. But at any rate, um, I would say one, to answer your question, I think we're looking at one. But I wouldn't rule out two if, if you, it would be much harder, I think, to commit this with two. And I would have thought there'd be more evidence of like footsteps you know, leaving or footprints leaving the house. I, I always wondered why they didn't, because I think there was a light snow that night and that would have been important. Okay. Uh, Dr. Bocato. I don't think okay, we're getting sorry, I was muted. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are some mass murderers that operate in teams, but they there you can count on a few hands the number of mass murders that are not associated with gangs or criminal enterprise, mafia killings, things like that, where you're going to have more than one offender working together. There are some usually involving a very psychopathic leader figure and a kind of weaker willed uh, figure that works alongside them to eliminate a group of people. Um, but I suspect that the essence of this case is the isolation of the offender, and the difficulty forming any kind of allegiance or alliance to a human being. So consequently, I am convinced this is probably a lone wolf offender. Uh, and, um, you know, and I think this, these questions Anne is raising about the absence of a lot of the, the of evidence really speaks to the planning uh, and the fact that this is not an impulsive mass murder. And, and as I was emphasizing earlier, that really alters our profile, because once we're dealing with somebody that planned something like this and went in and did it, carried it out like that, 
you, you've got to imagine a person who in the cold, the cool light of reason could think of doing something like this and carry it out without, you know, and be rational enough in the moment to, to do something like, for example, did he wear booties or something to like, why was he not covered in blood leaving trail? You know, did he bring a change of clothes? Did he? And I, I have to tell you, I envision a person who went in there dressed for the occasion. I probably had that knife kind of hanging at his side and kind of wearing stuff to dark clothing. And, you know, I really picture somebody that went in like he was going in for a mission. And, uh, you know, so that, um, you know, this point about the evidence, I think, has to be explored further. Tells you a lot about the offender, I think. Interesting. Great. Yeah, I, going back to the issue about it being planned, uh, I think he's he's identified the victims. He's familiar with the neighborhood. He's familiar with that residence. He knows that uh, who lives there. He knows what condition they're in. At least he knows that they're asleep because of the time. Um, and and for for that that time of of morning, assuming that they're asleep and if he was aware of what they were doing that, that evening, of course, he knows that they've been drinking. And there may be a, a level of presumption there based upon what knowledge he has of them and their lifestyle, um, which seems to be consistent. Um, so what's he doing there? He's increasing or rather decreasing his risk level uh, to fail and increasing the chances that he's going to, to succeed. Um, I don't think he uh, is interested in sharing this experience with anybody. I don't think you're going to find a second offender. Uh, this is an individual that uh, finds a great level of satisfaction um, in terms of the power and domination and control over, over those human beings and the impact that this is having upon everyone from the families to the police to the community to the country. Uh, this is a uh, a real win for this individual, and it's a, it's a huge area of personal satisfaction that uh, it has enhanced his personal self-esteem as a result of it and his sense of uh, identity and capacity as to what he can do um, and what he's, what he's able to do. Uh, just consider the, the impact and the effects that it's had for over the last six weeks. So most likely it's one offender. I agree with what's been said. And, um, and I think uh, the time, the condition of, uh, of the victims at the time of the assault and the location of the assault suggests certain implications about those personality characteristics that we've kind of alluded to. Um, he's not interested in interacting with his victim. Uh, he's not interested in threatening, verbalizing anything with them, uh, as has been enhanced or rather stated that this occurred in the, the dark, under the cloak of darkness. But not to him. He's, he, it's at his full advantage under these set of circumstances. Uh, they're in bed. They're at the most vulnerable position, plus is to some extent having been under the influence of alcohol, for example, whatever level that is. And there's been no discussion or, or or disclosure about the, uh, their their BA content, for example, uh, which is probably pretty significant, and the effect and impact that that's going to have on them. It enhances his ability to be successful, and it tells us something about uh, the level of planning and to ensure that 
that he's not going to fail on this. And he went there with the intent to do exactly what, what was done. You know, with those investigative uh, considerations, you know, the time of night, uh, the, t- uh, the, uh, the fact that what you've all mentioned, they're sleeping, perhaps alcohol's on board. Uh, what does that tell us uh, about the choice of weapon uh, that this uh, perpetrator uh, has chosen to uh, use that evening? And Dr. Percato, we'll start with you and then Anne, uh, if you would uh, dovetail into Doc's comments. Well, as I had mentioned earlier, the, the, the knife is sometimes chosen in a mass murder because you're dealing with somebody a little more mentally ill who can't access a gun or so. But I think what we're dealing with here is somebody who chose it um, because of its intimacy with the victims, because of the power that was felt coming close to the victims and kind of jabbing them with this, one might argue, phallic kind of instrument of power, domination, control, control over the victims. Uh, and I would imagine, uh, and I'm not sure about this, but having talked to offenders and read about offenders who use knives, that some of these people have a very intimate relationship with this knife. It, it's like a like a thing they love. It's an extension of themselves. You know, they they've used it sometimes to kill animals or or so forth, or, or cherished it. Or and um, I think you know that the killing with this knife is extremely important. Um, and incidentally. On the subject of hunting, uh, Anne has raised the point previously about this case, I think is an excellent one, is that this is somebody we would probably, we would expect to keep something from this, like a trophy, uh, because I think he's very proud of this, uh, as Dean, as uh, Greg was mentioning earlier. I think, like, we would keep a memento of a very important event. Um, I could really see this guy cherishing this knife and keeping some memento so that Anne, you know, can, can of course speak to this. But one of the suggestions that Anne had made was that if it was possible to do an inventory of what might be missing from that house, it's important because we have no idea what this guy might have kept. Um, but um, but I but I think he chose that knife because this is a, a cold blooded, uh, calculating kind of an individual who went in uh, with the idea to inflict a lot of pain, a lot of horror. Uh, and um, and an intimate kind of a style of killing. Hey, Dr. Burgess, thank you. Yeah, I was going to add uh, to what Gary said that he might even have a um, a whole host of knives. Uh, a um, I remember one case that I did when we turned they turned the mattress over. Incredible number of knives were right under the mattress. It was his. Uh, he was very proud of that, but yet he didn't show it. You know, he didn't like have it on the wall or like some people would ha- display there. things. so that might be something that uh, is, is looked for if they ever get a suspect of um, what type of I, they keep saying it's a single blade fixed blade. Uh, I don't know why they're saying that. But at any rate, that uh, that's the only information we have on the night. But it's and it's missing. And I think Gary's right. I think the, the it was taken. It was kept with him. I think he would find it. On, it's not the type that would just throw it away. And and talk about the the point that Dr. Ricardo made about uh, potentially the token aspect. Do you believe there, he could have not only taken his own knife, but other items from the potential crime scene? I would suspect he has, right. And it would be, again, uh, you, people would have to know what they had, but the most common thing is to take uh, like a, a license that has a picture on it. 
Um, it could be a, a school uh, badge kind of thing mm-hmm. or or something that especially if it's targeted, especially if it was one person, which they seem to be talking about that there is one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dennis Rader. Dennis, didn't Dennis Rader do that? BTK? He took a, a yeah. Fox, Fox's driver's license, if I remember right. A lot of them kept driver's license, yeah. Interesting. And then they would relive the crime. They they go over and over. So all four, you'd have to look to see if there was anything missing. Okay. okay. And, and Chris, just to jump in yeah. there to say one last one point about that is that it's interesting that BTK is one of those serial killers who was also a mass murderer. He's one of the, that rare breed that would kill an entire family, but would, you know, and then go on to kill, you know, uh, uh, elsewhere. So that, you know, that type with that ego driven kind of thing, they do seem to be trophy collectors like, uh, you know, the, the, so, so I, I wonder, of course, what, what Graham thinks about it too, about that if it, when they find this guy, if he's going to have some keepsakes, I'm really curious about that. Yeah. And I'm going to dovetail into your thought process for Greg is we're dealing with obviously a mass uh, murder. Um, and is he, is, is he evolving into a serial or has, is this his first time? Uh, and there's always this idea of uh, folks have been thinking about, is there a domestic connection to this? And he has taken this now to the mass murderer psyche. And I'd be interested to hear what the panel says about that thought process. So, Greg? I'm going back to the uh, the trophies, etc. Yes, this is very consistent with other cases where typically they want to take with them something that will keep the memory alive and and to relive the, that experience in their mind and, and uh, their fantasy. Uh, they have a very lively fantasy uh, and active fantasy lifestyle because um, that's where they first commit their crimes. And this is where the planning occurs. Uh, this is where the visualization of, of the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and how. It's all committed uh, in the mind before it's ever acted out, uh, and which is reinforced in other things that they may do uh, in living and preparing for that experience. Uh, anything from uh, reading about similar types of cases uh, to um, looking at photographs, drawings, writings, uh, reading about uh, in articles about other cases current cases that are going on but this is most likely has has developed over a significant period of time somebody just doesn't wake up in the morning and decide to go out and commit a crime like this this has been developing for quite a while i think in this individual's mind and uh, the the weapon is personal um, he has brought a particular weapon the style of the weapon knows how to use it um, our hope, of course, is, is he may have left some forensic evidence uh, in this process and in the interaction that can be um, traced. But uh, if not, most likely he's going to continue to maintain um, control over that particular memento. 
uh, for the purposes we've mentioned. I think that he was he's felt comfortable with the weapon before, carries it with him, potentially, uh, if not on his person, uh, within his ability to uh, reach it in a, in a quick uh, way, uh, whether it be in his car or in some kind of a uh, carrying type of um, a bag or a toolbox or um, he has access to it uh, because he it's part of him and part of the identity identifying with that particular experience uh, and that suggests also all right so how does that um, uh, how does how does it relate to other activities that he's involved in uh, that might require the use of a knife. And I think uh, that's for the law enforcement to consider uh, that there, there's a particular utility uh, that is familiar to him. Um, he utilizes it in other areas of his life, very possibly, and has become very adept in the usage of it and uh, has become quite, in his own perception, quite masterful at it. Interesting. Dean, uh, jump in here for a minute from an investigative uh, analysis approach. What type of uh, environments do you think the police uh, should be looking for? I mean, there's obviously a report of some animal abuse that had taken place uh, within a three-mile radius uh, of this uh, situation. So what say you? What are your thoughts? Well, I think uh, definitely look into that. I think they also are looking We'll be looking at um, issues like for related to um, even arson. I mean, we talked about that a little bit before. Uh, is there anything you know that might be there looking for uh, the, the homicidal triad issues that might be there? Um, I think you know one of the things that going back to kind of where we started this discussion here a few weeks ago, um, everything that we've been talking about. The other interesting aspect is, is that this, this particular um, environment is very conducive to somebody watching. You know, I think when you, we don't know what happened on the crime scene. So that's, that's part of our, our difficulty here. But I think once you separate all the things that everybody's talking about, and, you know, we look at these cases all across the country and sometimes people say, well, maybe, you know, are we looking over here? Are we looking over there? But then you look at the crime scene and you say, well, you know, that's not really a conducive environment for somebody, say, for example, to to be stalking or watching or to doing it. And I think the thing that really struck me with the video that you produced, uh, Chris, is that particular location. There are so many places, particularly up behind that home, uh, where somebody could sit and observe really undetected in the dark for long periods of time, uh, all up behind there, even that other road off to the side. I mean, there's, there's so many places that really kind of dovetail into what everybody else is saying here uh, about the, then getting into what could be happening there. And I think what, what the public sometimes doesn't realize is that, you know, each one of these elements have to be looked at in totality. I mean, we've, we've talked in our trainings about working our way into a crime scene then the crime scene itself. And I know, Chris, with your background, you always talk about once everything's done, taking time within that crime scene to look around and really spend time to do it. 
And I think sometimes the public thinks, well, you're done there. Well, no, actually, you're working your way back out of the crime scene based upon what we've seen in the crime scene. So and each one of those phases are so important. And I think what's what's important for for the public to understand or what's being discussed tonight is that all of these resources, all of this information is available to law enforcement. And just because they don't necessarily see movement, I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of behind the scenes work that's happening. And of course, you know, how many times have we as an organization looked at or heard about cases and then all of a sudden you get access to the entire material, everything that's there, all the autopsy report, everything in detail. And, you know, it's like you're just backfilling so much information that really opens it up. And so I do think that there's all of those elements are at play here as well. So, Okay. And, it, awesome input. And so getting back into the, the, the psychological aspect of things for a moment, I want to go back to the idea of uh, based on uh, each of your research, all of your research, I mean, all of you have done research uh, and you know, in these issues, you know, Dr. Prakata, you know, mass murder. I mean, you're, you're internationally known and I mean, internationally known. I mean, you guys, you're the authorities. I mean, you're, you're the, you're the game in town. There's, you know, if people want to know you, they come to BC and they say, uh, you know, Hey, can I ask you a question? So to have you here tonight for the general public to listen to you, um, I think is a treat. Not only that, but your insight into helping them, uh, i.e. the folks that are listening here, there's so many questions coming at us. Uh, but I want to get into the idea of, uh, based on your research and the, your years of experience, uh, do you think this individual could be um, a, a serial already and then have come to this mass murder uh, game or what are your thoughts there? I mean, this dynamic of that pendulum. Well, he, he uh, I think I've already said that he certainly has killed before, but I think he's killed animals um, and really practice there. I, make me curious about what kind of work he may have done or is doing that involves knives or, or that kind of um, activity. Whether he has actually killed humans is not clear, but I, what I think is clear is he's going to do it again. Um, when the fantasy fades, when some of the talk of the case kind of fades and he's not able to keep the, the, um, fantasy alive, that would be a critical time. And I will say to, to back up what, uh, Dean said, we do have information from you, Chris, if you will, on the area and how remote it was and how you took the video of that because it's as important if you want to catch a suspect you got to find out where he is so how does he get out of the house where does he go uh, you know is he in the in the community or is he from another community or does he have a car etc cetera, etc cetera. all of those could be looked at um that are not part of the crime scene so that i think that with all of the investigation you all have done, that that would be really, really important to, to look at. And nobody seems to be talking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, the dynamic of that was one way in, one way out. Once you turn left on that street, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty, you know, contained environment. 
uh, as a whole. Dr. Uh, Dr. Picotto, what, what say you? Well, I happen to be very interested in this roughly 12% of mass murderers that prove to actually be serial killers. Um, and it's important to understand that when you're looking at mass murder, the vast majority of people who commit it are people who are emotionally overwhelmed by a life event like a loss of a job or school or a loved one or whatever, because these are individuals whose entire identity tends to be rooted in one thing that gives a sort of scope to who they are, a purpose of, and they lose it and sort of explode. They, you know, and, uh, and sometimes express envy that other people have things that they don't. But there is this kind of subset of mass murders, and I think that's where this person falls that look a lot more like serial killers because what you see is is not the kind of popping that you you know but more plotting methodically going out and committing so that you're not really seething with rage impulsively but you have this capacity to in a kind of reptilian way you know strike uh and observe and be callous and so and fearless and so you start to get hints that this is somebody with a more psychopathic quality now what's interesting is if this person goes on to be a serial killer what kind of serial killer would he be well the vast majority of serial killers are sexually motivated that's the the huge bucket into which most particularly post 1960s serial killers fall but then you have other types and one of the types is this more mission-oriented not particularly sexual type or at least overtly sexual type where we would see people like David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, uh, the Zodiac Killer, Ted Kaczynski, serial killers that have a kind of a, they're angry about something. They're on a, they're, they're, are they misanthropes or they hate women or they, but they're not overtly perverse, sexually perverse. Uh, and um, what's interesting about that kind of person is they have a trait in common, which is that they, they, that they're very driven uh, by the need for the fear, the, the, the public, to admire them or be afraid of them. It's an ego thing. And they tend to contact law enforcement. Son of Sam did that, Zodiac Killer did that, Ted Kaczynski did that, except. So the idea being um, that the motivation is much more about that I want to assert domination and control, not only over women, you know, the victim in the moment, but I want the whole public to be afraid of me, almost as if I'm a kind of god. And um, what, what I think is that if this person goes on to be a serial killer, we would have somebody who was motivated probably from childhood, probably has been fantasizing for a long time about asserting domination and control over people, probably a woman. I agree with Greg, Greg's point about that. But the expression of that is not overtly sexual. It's more generalized. It's a kind of hatred that is overarching. And I think this is the kind of person who wants people to know what he did. And well, uh, I, I, I have I a question on that. This is the person who... Yes, I think this is a person who probably monitors the press, may even collect the press about himself. I think this is a person who would become furious if somebody said something about him that wasn't true or weakened him. Uh, and I think this is the kind of person that can be drawn out by, hopefully, by law enforcement because of his ego. We've seen offenders like this, for example, where there's a public event where the public is asked about their thoughts on the offense or uh some public there's some uh, giving of evidence or so and we find that these people are present in the audience 
or ask questions or attend the funerals of the victims or or participate in memorial events and things. And I can't help but feel this is the kind of person whose ego will trip him up. I think that this is a person who in, would inveigle himself into the investigation and what is going on and monitor it in the same way you probably stalk the victims. Because we see that in the types of serial killers, the types of offenders who are not sexually motivated in an overt way. Now, the other thing to mention is that about half of mass murders uh, take their own lives. One of the things I think we have to think about here is the possibility that the final expression of ego with this kind of person would be to slip away from law enforcement, take their own life, and that would be the end of the person. Then we would find that out later. Uh, but that is more common when mass murderers use guns, not when they would employ a blade like this. Uh, so I suspect this person is out there and possibly even watching this video that we're filming right now. I'd be curious about other people's thoughts about that, but I think the characteristics are there where we would not be surprised if the offender progressed to play this fantasy out because I think the point is to find people who symbolically represent some prototypical figure that they loathe, and they're out there possibly casting the fantasy, looking for the next victims. I don't know how particular what these victims were. I suspect it was more that they symbolized some object of projection or displacement from earlier in life. And like a person with an addiction, they'll need a greater and greater, greater thrill so that we we might imagine this person to go on to progress. I agree with Anne. That's a distinct possibility based on the characteristics of the offender. And I'd be thrilled to hear everybody else's opinions on that. That is a fascinating yeah. point. And I want to add a, one more dynamic to my question now based on what you just said. Um, if If this individual has a, let's say, an undeveloped mind, i.e. through immaturity and age and all of this, you know, building and they're a little bit younger, hypothetically. Okay. Um, would domestic relationships play into this, you know, into this drive uh, where the fantasy had built to that point? And Greg, I'm going to start with you. Uh, are you tracking where I'm going there? Let's say this is a younger offender, hypothetically. Okay. Because uh, we don't know, right? But does this look like, I mean, a younger offender who's triggered and boom, they explode? Are you see where I'm going there? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, <clears throat> I, I think, at least in my experience, that it would be much easier to address these, these topics if we could see the crime scenes. And, and really assess the interaction between the offender and, and the victim. And particularly the difference, if there are any differences, significant differences between uh, how the assault, the nature of the assault, the amount of wounds, the location of the wounds, etc., on each of those victims. Because <clears throat> each one of them portray a message for us. Um, and... And without that information, like I've already mentioned, it's 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 a big puzzle that we only have a few pieces to. And um, but in terms of the developmental of the uh, aspect of the the personality of this individual, uh, moving from one level to another, we certainly know that that happens. We know that uh, we can have uh, 
serial rapists and serial killers who become uh, have to join in and, and bring these both both of these activities together. Uh, we know that there are serial rapists that are perfectly satisfied at that, and they're not uh, motivated to go beyond that. And we've had cases where it's one and done, so to speak, one event, and it's finished. Uh, that it satisfied that level of fantasy that they had, and they were satiated, and um, they never committed another crime, at least to, to our knowledge. Uh, something like this, again, without that detailed information, the behavioral information, uh, the signature aspect, if you will, about the potentiality that exists there, that would give us another whole area of uh, evaluation to consider. And in my philosophy about signature aspect of a crime is if, if there is a signature aspect present, uh, typically that suggests that they'll continue to commit crimes. Um, and the, the consideration that they may have committed crimes before that as well, depending on how sophisticated, what the nature of those signatures are. Um, and so it's difficult to answer those questions. It's all possible. You know, anything's possible. But in this case, we don't have enough information, in my opinion, to, to give you a conclusive answer for sure. Um, but, but we do know that they develop. They develop over time and experience that their MO will um, uh, develop also. The, the level of sophistication that they use uh, uses develops. And their signatures may change from one crime to the other, but, but have a, uh, even in that signature aspect, there may be, although they're different, there may be commonalities among them as well. Dr. Burgess? I'm just going to say that what we do know about many of the killers is they're very bright. So that their IQ, uh, at least that's what we found in our, the majority were, I don't know whether Gary can comment on his, his sample, but uh they're very bright and they're able to plan and carry it out and get away with it, which is what it looks like this uh, this case is, is heading towards. Interesting. Interesting. Dr. Hey, Chris, can I ask a question real quick? Please, please. So, um, what, are, what are you guys' thoughts uh, about just at a 30,000-foot level, but has there been enough research on incel to, incels to just see whether or not that's has an application here. I don't know, Gary, involuntary celibate is what I'm referring to, but I don't know um, what your thought is on that. Has, has there been much study on that, Gary or Ann? Uh, so, uh, well, from what I've seen, uh, you know, there really isn't insufficient evidence to make a, a generalization yet about this. There are certainly instances where um, people, particularly of the the type that I'm envisioning that would not be overtly sexually motivated, but there might be a whiff of it in the choice of weapon or the targeting of women, let's say, or so forth in the way that Anne's work has discussed, where you can have less overt sexual qualities. Um, some of these people do feel um, that they've been sort of castrated uh, by women or um, are forced into celibacy and, and wish to assert domination and control over women for that reason. Um, but to say that um, there's a direct relationship between being an incel and the proclivity to violence would, I think, would be uh, a very premature statement based on uh, the, the existing literature. Um, but I, I think it's more like 
you know, the probability of an incel becoming violent is low, but some people who are violent are incels, so that, right. that we have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is a person where we learned that he had never had a sexual encounter or, or you know, perhaps we've learned with some of these offenders that they might um, engage in sexual encounters with prostitutes or um, people where there was a transactional kind of sexual relationship. Um, but but I can't help but imagine that this is a person who is probably not capable of having those kinds of relations, who would, who would spook people too much, put them off, and um, would be kind of regimented and weird on a date. Uh, and, uh, and I think would have an envy of people who more smoothly uh, were able to negotiate relationships. That's I, my I, I'm curious what other people would think. I agree with, with Gary. I, I think that um, by the selection of these victims, they're not prostitutes. These are not people who are hitchhiking. He's selecting a certain type of victim that represents something to him. And whether it's a victim that he yearns for you know, as a possibility, but doesn't have, or he's been offended by for one reason or another, or in, in either one of them, and then there may be some collateral damage in this situation. Um, but uh, I think it's very significant because he selects what otherwise we would look at as a medium to low risk level of, of a victim. But based upon the environment, the situation and circumstances and the condition of those victims, it elevates the risk level because of the hours, the location they're sleeping and the fact that they're uh, they've had consumed some alcohol at least some of them um this has been taken into account by this offender and that's those are some of the reasons why those victims were selected because he could have gone out he could have gone out and picked up a hitchhiker gone out to a truck stop gone down and, and picked up a, a, a prostitute but he didn't so there's a significant reason for that Dr. Burgess, you've been studying these guys for quite some time. Weigh in here. Yeah, I wanted to uh, follow up on Dean's question on the incel. There is not a lot of research going on. It is something that we are looking at. I have found a, a study that looked at 250 incels, but it looks like there are many, many incels out there. They have their own groups and social media is evidently pretty, pretty uh, populated with it. But they, there are groups that do not get into the violence. So I think that's the good news, if you will. But there certainly is a group that doesn't. We have 25 cases that we're going to look at in, in more depth to see where there has either been a murder um, that they have murdered and then they suicide. Absolutely follows what Gary's research has, has shown. And then there's some others that they were able to arrest for other crimes before they um, became violent. So it, it's a very interesting area that has not been well researched and really needs it. And I think that's where law enforcement needs would need to get up to speed a bit on that type of offender. Not sure whether it's a new typology or whether it's an expansion of what we have seen before. That, that's something that we really want to uh, look at. But I did want to mention one other thing that nobody seems to have brought up. The only cases other cases where there has been such intense stabbing, if you will, is where the offender was really high on drugs. Has that been discussed at all? Could, if, if that's so, 
and he is on drugs, that that would be something for law enforcement to ever find out who's his drug dealer to see if there's anything along that line. I don't know if anyone else wants to comment on that, but we've had some horrific cases where the, I, I know we had one woman that was attacked with scissors, incredible attack, and who turned out to not only be on drugs, but also be on alcohol. Well, uh, I will I will add to that, that when we did the mass murder database, we found that the two best predictors were use of drugs and alcohol and previous criminal history. Uh, and, um, you know, so that I think it's possible, but with somebody, the, the idea is, is that these are individuals who, when they are not using, would, would be less likely to commit such a frenzy day. And I think the personality characteristics that are being gleaned from, from the little we know here are more suggestive of a person that if he used drugs or alcohol, it was more as a kind of a, a loosening of the braking system, a kind of a way of getting himself in a certain state, like we saw, for example, in Ted Bundy and a lot of other offenders that would drink before or loosen themselves up, so forth, add to the thrill. Um, but but it's a very important point because, again, this is a mass murder. And, um, and when you look at the literature, at least the been able to contribute to a mass murder drug use and alcohol use are very important and they do seem to add a, a frenzy to kind of over the top quality to some of these offenses i think it's a great point um but uh, but let's just say the organization here is not consistent with somebody that was very compromised uh uh you know high to the point of losing control you know where we'd be looking at somebody who looked an awful lot like a not guilty by reason of insanity case or something this is somebody who even if he was under the influence was mechanical organized <laughs> and um you know got out of there not leaving heavy traces it looks like and so so i think even if that's going on it doesn't seem to have um compromised his uh, his his awareness now i will also mention one other thing uh well, on the subject of this competency and intelligence and all that um which was a point we touched on a few questions ago which is that some data that i saw from the serial killer database that's kept at florida gulf coast radford universities it's the really largest study i'm aware of of serial killers they did have iqs on a few hundred of them and kind of eyeballing it, looking through it um, at the time I was writing The New Evil, um, one of the things I spoke to the people who created that database about is that what it looks like is, is that the higher intellect is present more in serial offenders who engage in torture. And it seems to be because for some of them, the sadistic brutalization of bodies is more like an experimentation, a curiosity. Uh, it's like, like a kid in a candy shop that is wondering about what happens when I do this to a human body and things like that. So that for some of them, it's sheer sadism. For some of them, it's a kind of weird experimentation like we see in some offenders like Ed Kemper and some of these people that are really so isolated that, that they have a curiosity about bodies and people uh, that, that sort of borders on the peculiar, like that, that becomes weird in, a, in a, what we might call a schizoid autistic detachment. Uh, not suggesting, of course, that people on the spectrum have a privilege of violence, but that's a term that's used for that kind of intellectualized detachment. Um, so that, you know, it's an interesting question about the intellect here, um, but, but I don't think there's evidence of torture or, or anything like that. 
this looks more like a blitz style over the top expression of you know rage or hatred or something uh towards these people uh and um so that statistically that wouldn't suggest a brilliant you know over the top but this is certainly an intelligent person uh who i i would suspect um knows a thing or two about true crime and how how people you know what other offenders have done to get away with things uh to dean to greg's point about the that this is somebody who i think thought about this a long time fantasized a long time and then picked the target um I, I think this guy knows a lot about other offenders and some of the techniques they've used and um i wouldn't be surprised if this person turned out to be uh, quite a true crime fan uh greg th would you agree with that yeah absolutely uh, I think uh, there has been an extensive period of time that he's developed and uh, he developed to the point where now he's confident and he's very confident. He goes into that house at that particular time. He he's planned it out sufficiently where it has reduced his risk level and uh, he's very competent and confident both. Uh, he's prepared for this and uh, there may be discussions that he's had with people, not just about this. We've talked about post-defense behavior, pre-defense behavior. You know, we're looking for what, why did he act out that particular uh, night or that particular early morning hours? Typically, there's this precipitating stressors and triggering events that occur in their lives that, that build over a period of time, these stressors. And the stressors are similar to what all of us go through. The way in which they deal with those stressors is what's significantly different here. They'll go out and commit a crime. It de-stresses. It builds their self-esteem because when they're successful at committing the crime, depending on the types of crime, and certainly this this falls in that category. And uh, so something happened to trigger the event to work to do it that that early morning hours um, to make that decision. He was prepared, has been prepared for a while, most likely, and for whatever reason, something triggered it. To say this is my time this is the opportunity and i'm going to strike interesting uh, dr burgess and, and just uh if you're just joining us uh this evening just uh let everybody know we have an auditorium of about 5200 people in here tonight listening to you so if you think about that as an auditorium you have packed three auditoriums this evening okay? and they're listening intently and one of the uh, questions that comes up is have you had a chance to communicate with other you know uh, colleagues with inside of your circles uh, that have weighed in uh, behind the scenes yeah well I'll take that one yes I have it's a, a great topic uh, being talked about a lot on our campus because it because of it being a university case and our being a campus. So people are weighing in. I had the, uh, in fact, one of the uh, deans from the school of management uh, weighed in. He said he was thinking about it. He thinks that this man, he thinks it's a man and that he's in his mid twenties. So he was weighing in on the age factor and he went into that. It was kind of interesting. But um, I have a, a contact, a journalist, uh, Greg Heropian, who is out on the West Coast. And he is in good contact, frequent contact with Ed Kemper. And we wanted to know if Ed, when he went to see him, whether Ed Kemper would be able to weigh in on it, uh, not knowing whether he 
you know, watches any of this or whatever. And so uh, Greg did talk with him, spent some time, took some crimes, took some scenes <laughs> off. The only things I could take him because uh, you could take it into the into the prison were outside pictures, of course, pictures of the house, you know, and anything that was on the website. So uh, Greg had a series to take in. And so one of the comments that Ed Kemper said is he said, uh, and I'll just read from, from the notes, Greg said, I showed him photos of the, of the victims. We sent pictures of the victims and the house. And he said his first comment was the house was really weird looking. And in a way it is, it's a very unusual looking house. And so that's what caught his attention initially. And then he wanted to know whose cars were parked out there, which of course were the victim's cars as I understand it. And then he said the skin dog corpse found nearby might not have been because of the murder. It could have been done by a wannabe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know what that was. And then he said, if law enforcement had tried to speak to Ed through the media, we wanted to know that question, he wouldn't have responded. He said, any evidence is evidence. And if you have no choice but to leave evidence during a crime and you don't want to add to it. Uh, and then Greg talked to Ed about a time when he had left a, himself in one of his crimes, a footprint that had been left in the mud with his size 15 boot and how he decided not to create more footprints by climbing back down the embankment to try to erase it. So he was very aware, Ed Kemper was very aware of evidence and leaving evidence and what he would or would not do. Now, Ed, of course, for those of you who maybe don't know, he would always kill in pairs, not always, but usually killed in pairs, killed his grandparents, killed co-eds in pairs, and killed his mother and her friend. So that there was this kind of thought of uh, multiple victims. And he... Um, uh, I think the other interesting thing about Ed is there is a was a printout that he had decided that he would move from just what he said, just killing co-eds and then start mass killing. He had already thought of killing mass and that's when he turned himself in. So um, uh, the other thing that Ed Kemper did, of course, was to um, de de decapitate the victims and cut their hands off. And that was because of, in those days, don't forget, it was just DNA or fingerprints that they would go after. And he thought he could, uh, he, he was doing some way of, of So avoiding. he was thinking ahead of the investigators. Yeah. During, oh, yes. Post-crime, oh, yeah. post post-incident uh, behavior. Right. And he would try to in, insert himself into the investigations, don't forget. He would sit with the police. Yeah. And, and ask how things were going. He said he, he was a friendly nuisance mm -hmm. to police. So to answer your question, yes, people are talking about it, but evidently in the prisons, he only has access to local news. So he did not know anything about this. That's why we, uh, Greg had to take photos in. Interesting. I, I, I heard it the other day. Uh, there's another channel, um, great guy. His name is Ken Maines, former... Uh, cold case guy. Uh, Ken interviewed a guy on death row up in San Quentin. Quentin. And, uh, you know, this guy has been in prison for, I think, 39 years and hanging around with all these guys, you know, Richard Ramirez, et cetera, up, up on death row. And his thinking was, after hanging around with these guys, that 
he thought the, the perpetrator would have, you know, been hanging out behind the house and whittling in trees and that, you know, getting bored and that kind of stuff. So his thought process was go look at the trees uh, behind the house. And uh, if, if you guys are that in here tonight at 5,400, get go over there and look at uh, that interview or listen to it uh, that uh, Ken did over there. It's uh, quite, quite intriguing uh, as a whole. But, and then uh, I guess tonight I can say I, I, we've talked to Ken, you know, to Ed Kemper, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. It, what's fascinating yeah. is these guys are weighing in. Yeah. Right? They're When they're asked, they're weighing in, which, you know, that this has been in your wheelhouse, uh, you know, for many, many years. Uh, they really are, uh, when you sit down with them, some of them are very likable, but they're so evil on the other side of that persona. Uh, you know, and that's where I want to direct this question back at Dr. Bucato. Why is that? Why do they, how can they master this chameleon aspect of that evil personality? There are different types of serial killers if we're talking about that type of offender about half of serial killers have the schizoid qualities i was mentioning early where they um aren't particularly good at um connecting to other human beings feel a kind of detachment so forth and that type isn't especially good at faking uh uh interpersonal relationships having compassion all those kinds of things in a phony way um but the the type of serial killer who is purely psychopathic possibly sadistic um you you tend to see among those individuals a phenomenon that in psychology is called splitting where the person can by day you know live a productive life and be kind of innocuous and have friends and family and so forth while secretly harboring this other part of the self where they've been angry for a very long time that kind of stems from a time when they were less socially adept where they hadn't yet learned how to fake it out in the world and they're still mad about it from when they were bullied or ridiculed or symbolically castrated by a parent or treated like garbage or something and they've been furious about it for a long time and they resent the the people out there in the world that are getting along with them and like them only now that they're all polished and kind of put together and under control and uh, you certainly saw that in Ted Bundy, for example, uh, and some other offenders. But that splitting phenomenon is very interesting because what you see in people who can compartmentalize in that way um, is that there tends to be a wish or a longing to bridge the split for the public to finally see what they really are, you know, when when they're powerful and in control and whatever. So that you see things like, you know, the BTK right under everyone's nose, hiding snapshots of himself, where, you know, the kids and the wife are just kind of walking around the house and at any moment could discover it, which would bridge the split. Or you saw in the case of um, Gary Ridgway, who at one point was the most prolific serial killer in, in, in U.S. history, has been surpassed by Sam Little, uh, uh, but um, but at one point, uh, there was an incident where he killed a woman and left her corpse sort of festering somewhere out in a field and then brought his wife out to the field to make love near where the corpse was festering. Because the idea was to almost it was almost a wish that perhaps if you brought these things close enough together, the bridge would 
that the split would dissolve and suddenly there'd be awareness of what he was. Uh, and um, so that I think what you see with some of these people is, is this kind of, um, there's a lot of work to keep the split going and a desire for the world to see what they are behind the curtain. And um, so I think that's a, it's a fascinating element to some of these people. But those that type of serial killer tends to be more sexually motivated. Uh, and um, an interesting thing about them is, you know, a lot of people say, oh, a psychopathic person lacks empathy. What they really mean is they lack compassion. But that type of person has, quote unquote, empathy in the sense that they could read the feelings of other people. They just don't care about them. So that, like, for example, a person might go into a shopping mall and find a child who's crying because he's been separated from his mother. And he recognizes that the child is in pain and sad and misses his mother, but he takes advantage of it. He lacks compassion. So he says to the child, oh, oh little boy, I, uh, let me help you, you know, and then takes him off and does God knows what. Uh, the person that we're talking about in this incident in the Idaho, in, you know, here, I think would be somebody who wasn't particularly good at even faking empathy. I think this is a weirder person, a person who couldn't fake it long enough probably to even get a date or have a friend, uh, which is why I think we see a lot of in the dark, you know, kind of uh, uh, punishing of people who might be more successful socially and, and uh, kind of an envy about that. Uh, so I think when we find this person uh, that they're going to strike people as an odd duck. Hey, hang on just for a second. Not a slick splitting. Greg has to go to a Christmas party, so we're going to let him follow <laughs> And so you feel better. He does not have his Christmas sweater on, if you can tell. Uh, uh, buddy, uh, thank you so much uh, for jumping in tonight away from your family. And I'll catch up with you tomorrow. And, of course, you know, we love you and uh, you, the great work that you do. You're great Thanks, everybody. Great okay. to rub shoulders with you. Everybody else is staying. Take care. Everybody else is staying. And we're going to take some of your questions. Uh, as we move along, and we got Dean here to fill the fill that gap. Okay, there he goes. Uh, let me let me do something. Whoop. Okay, he's out. Um, okay, so that that was a great um, comment, uh, Doc. Was there anything else? I, I interrupted you, and I, and I apologize, but Coop sent me a text, and you know how we get. I gotta I gotta go, bud. <laughs> I think that that about sums up that part of the end. Okay. Um, okay, so Dean, did you have anything you want to? Because you and I are kind of like two, you know, flies on the wall. Being the investigative side of this, you know, I, I could sit here for days and, you know, listen to the psychological side of this thing uh, as always, and the profiling side of things. I mean, it's that's the one thing that I've always uh, found fascinating. You know, being, you know, working homicide as long as I did, and all this stuff, but you know, I've never been a profiler, right? I mean, I've, I've always hung around you guys and, you know, I know Dr. Park Dietz and many other folks, you know, down in Southern California park is, you know, a good guy. And, uh, but, you know, to listen and to always learn uh, is I think a really uh, incredible opportunity to have you uh, here, not only teaching the masses here where they're, you know, again, we're about 5,400 people, almost 5,500 people uh, in the in this auditorium. So um, it's great. It's great. Dean, what, what did you, uh, 
any thoughts that have come up to your mind so far? Because I've got a couple more questions and then we're going to, I've got 19 questions stacked up. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all of them, uh, but I've been marking them. So guys and, and gals, uh, subscribers and stuff, thank you so much for your patience uh, as we get through this. Uh, but this is, this is fascinating. So uh, Dean, any thoughts? I, you know, I, I've enjoyed all of this conversation as well. I think, uh, you know, obviously, uh, having spent the last 10 years uh, working daily with Greg, uh, have uh, just learned so much and, and continue to learn. And of course, to have Ann and, and Gary here tonight for me is I feel like a sponge. So I tell people all the time, it's like uh, sitting in a master's level course on a regular basis, you know, but I, I think the one thing I would just comment on back to what was when the reference regarding the the knife and the familiarity and, and really my thoughts are coming more from just we're looking at so many cases across the country. And so when I see something or hear something, you know, you wonder, is there an applicable factor here? Because you see it in another case. And the one thought I did have was, um, you know, because we're talking a lot about his proficiency, how important this knife was to him, all of those dynamics. And I know we've had cases where, um, you have an individual who's really, they've developed that love or attraction or relationship, if, if you were, with the knife or the weapon uh, through some of the martial arts type training. And so I don't know, you know, whether or not he's actually enrolled in something, because to Gary's point, I think, you know, that relationship, the ability to sit in a class and uh, have that interaction, I don't know if he can go there, but I do think there's always, particularly where we are today on the internet, I could imagine him uh, practicing and fantasizing, trying to learn moves and to do things. And, you know, that that idea that Greg was kind of focusing on that this guy, you know, believes he's he's got, got it all together. And so that's one of the things I think that the dynamic we deal with today that's unique is the internet. And, you know, if you want to fix your dryer, you can go out and see how to do it and, and learn how to do it on the Internet. So there's so many things that people are able to access. And I I also was wondering, maybe both of you could ask, I, I, I get all these questions, but my thought was, you know, we talk about them wanting to relive. We talk about that through the aspect of keeping things, uh, tokens, mementos, those types of things. What What do you think is the possibility that they relive through, you know, whether it's live or just listening to all these people talking about the story on the internet. I mean, it would seem to me that, you know, in the past they had to sit and try to think about it or go back to the location, but they have a plethora of places now in the internet to, you know, relive it and almost feel like, you know, you're talking about it, but I know it's almost that feeling of, you know, when you hear a story that somebody's telling but you were actually there and you were actually behind the scenes, you know, that's just some thoughts I think that pop into my head as we're talking tonight. Who wants to take it first? Dr. Burgess. Oh, you're sorry, Ann. Yeah. Um, I think that the social media issue is huge. And I think that I hope that they have, examined the uh, hard drives of, of the victims to see whether any messages came in or whatever, but that gets into the profiling. And uh, what do we think? You know, would he be uh, under an assumed name, et cetera? I think Gary also brought out uh, after a podcast like this, that there can be a lot of very interesting 
uh, call-ins, whatever. And somebody should be, I hope, is, is doing some kind of analysis on that. They now have programs that can very quickly go through social media posts. Uh, and, and so it's a, a new area is really opening up. But I had a question for you investigators. You know, we, there are two crime scenes, two major crime scenes. Are they the same? Are they different? I mean, that would be so important to compare uh, that, that which was first, you know, just a huge number of questions that we really would need if we could do a, a really good uh, profile on this case. Yeah, you know, and in my experience with, uh, and, and technology has just advanced, you know, to your point, and just yeah. in leaps and bounds. Uh, but there, you know, the technology, I think that they utilize there, I saw, which is called the FARO, F-A-R-O. I'm no, I know you're familiar with it, but it's a 3D scanner that literally uh, you, you can nail uh, blood spatter analysis, you can nail you know, right down to a millimeter of where the victims are laying, et cetera, and that kind of uh, stuff. So to do that analysis post-incident, uh, I believe even in your, in your world, you know, to have had that opportunity to bring these analysis to the behavior science unit and say, this is, rather than just throwing the photographs on the table, right, and saying this is what A, B, C, right. and D, now the technology can actually take you into that room and your minds can sit in that room and take it in. And I think to your point, each one of those rooms, uh, there are, right. There are five crime scenes potentially. I mean, each of the bedrooms and the, and the overall, but then you have the exterior, which could be six. And then you could have the vehicles if the suspect, in any way, shape, or form, had a correlation to the vehicles, um, and so I think what the public is not understanding in totality. Last night, even the the PD went back into the house last night. Uh, so that tells us something, right? They're they're sure. starting to piece together some of these bigger pictures. Uh, to your point, so um, it it is a very um, important piece of the puzzle but we don't have that yeah you know, that information currently uh, and that's why i think your assessment and dr Procrado's assessment here in terms of you know trying to understand not only the psychological end of it but the victimology end of it and slash into the suspectology um because you know there's a lot of stuff floating on the internet out there you know about different you know, scenarios, different types. Um, but I think you're right on target. And that, and that leads me into question number two, okay? Uh, or one of the next questions here. Post-incident, post-offense behavior. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit and share some of your thoughts on um, uh, what you feel there. And Dr. Picardo, we'll start with you and then Ann will come back to you if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, in the absence of, you know, of an offender here, we don't know what this person did after the offense, but we do have some clues that come from similar offenders about what may have happened. Uh, one possible scenario based on mass murders, as I had mentioned earlier, is that the possibility that this individual took 
his own life somewhere. Uh, that happens in about 50% of mass murders. But I think that that's more common in people that, as I said, who use firearms. And I think that that you see it more in mass murder where it's the culmination of a kind of an nihilistic experience of, you know, my life is crumbled and I, there's no reason to live anymore, so forth. And you see either suicide by cop or taking one's life, you know, there. And um, what, what I think we're looking at here is more somebody who um, slipped out of there and went home and is probably repeatedly experiencing the event through fantasy and memory and memento. And um, as Dean, I think, astutely pointed out, probably getting a kind of a perverse thrill out of, um, you know, that transition from nobody to everybody by having the whole world talking about him. Uh, and um, so that I think the kind of post-offense behavior we're seeing is a person who is inflating kind of narcissistically inflating every time he's talked about and is probably getting some amusement when people like us are wrong about an aspect of himself, but probably also irritated that he wants to kind of come out of the shadows and say, wait a minute, this is what really motivated me, you know. And what I think you also have is somebody who probably has a sense of satisfaction that some right from earlier, you know, some wrong, excuse me, from earlier in their life has been settled the score has been settled and uh but but not quite who might not be completely satisfied who may say well that was anticlimactic i need to keep doing this to settle that score you know over and over again uh and i think uh, one of the things that's interesting about this offense is you really get the feeling that these the, particularly the women in this group were sort of lumped together the way that um one thinks about the enemy in war or something like simply because you have a certain characteristic or wear a certain uniform you're part of them you know that that kind of now i do think based on other offenders that probably there was a central target and the others were pulled in uh we can't say that for sure but it's possible uh, and um, but 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 i think we want to think about somebody who's walking around with a generalized hatred towards some group of people that they feel uh, has slighted them in some way, uh, you know, probably women. And then if that's the case, based on previous offenders, one of the things we want to think about, and Anne, I'd love your thoughts on this based on your work, is that in many ways, what we could be seeing is somebody who is punishing that group or punishing women for things like consuming alcohol, going out and partying, having romantic partners, you know, over the house, you know, et cetera. So there might be somebody with a kind of moralistic quality that is angry about somebody that they think has been, let's say, in their opinion, wayward or a bad woman or a, a drinker or a whatever. Uh, and uh, so we don't know what is being projected onto these victims from previous experience of women or a woman in his life. Uh, and um, and what would you say about that, about that possibility of punishing no. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That can be a, a, a clear motive, too, that they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And, and in a way, it certainly mm -hmm. doesn't fit in with a um, misogynist type where the um, and the anger at the women. I, not That's why it's so important to try to get more information on that too again, I guess, get more information on the crime scenes. Yeah. yeah, it's so fa fascinating. I mean, it, this the dynamics of this, you know, the blitzkrieg attack, um, 
the one of the thoughts that I had early on was that the young man there, you know, not being insensitive or, you know, to the families or anything, but I, I, I just felt he was perhaps in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And that the targets uh, were definitely towards the girls with inside of that environment. And uh, one of the, the other thing that Dean and I talked about and, uh, you know, with others at the Cold Case Foundation was that one brick uh, in the back of the house, it, it's a cinder block with a brick on top of it. And it was almost as if it was, you know, and, and there's been a very, you know, variances of you know, discussion in relationship to, you know, what its relevance is, but it almost looked like it could have been utilized as, you know, a seat or, you know, a tool to step up on, to look at. And of course, you know, that's, we don't have evidence of that, but the fact that it was next to the, to a screen that had been pulled off from one of the windows. And, and at this point, I don't think we know what the point of entry was uh, into the residence, but it just gave me vibes of a voyeurism uh, situation, which ties right into your point, uh, Dr. Picado, in relationship to, you know, this rejection aspect, uh, this, you know, moralistic, uh, I'm, I'm the hero here. I'm going to fix things. Uh, and, and that rejection, uh, internally as the trigger point that kind of pushed this thing, you know, to its, um, to starting right. and then, and then well, well, to that point, Chris, he could have been in the house getting very familiar with it while they were all out because nobody came home till about one o'clock in the morning. So that house was probably empty. And we've certainly seen that in killers before. They just, uh, the more comfortable they get, they can then commit the crime. So they're either he's comfortable with the house or he's comfortable with the area. Uh, he's, he's been there before. Interesting. Well, I think that goes to predatory behavior, correct? I mean, when you have somebody who is a predator, uh, potentially, then they're going to, they're going to know their area. They're going to, they're going to watch their area. They're going to, you know, how to move. They're going to know exit points. They're going to have all of those things uh, that would be there as part of that. I mean, uh, you know, just like right. animal hunts as a predator, uh, you know, you see hunters that will set up uh, in an area way before hunting season to observe and to do all those things. I think that's the interesting dynamic that you start seeing in these investigations of these, these behavioral things. One is for a very legitimate uh, reason. And, you know, you flip to the other side and you see people taking those same behaviors but applying them. Uh, for for very uh, different reasons and purposes, you know. So, Dr. Gary, jump in here. So, one thing, and I happen to be writing as we speak about this for a, a book I'm working on, uh, is this, you know, how are victims selected? You know, I'm very interested in that subject. And one of the things I learned from looking at interviews with offenders is that some of them talk about viewing somebody leaving a screen loose or a door open or something as almost an invitation. And the way they see it is it's very much like you're loose. 
it's your looseness that caused you to die you know you made you allowed me to know the code to get into the house you left the door open you left it's your own fault for that so that what you start to see is their offenders will actually say that, that that say things like i checked a whole bunch of doors in the neighborhood and and i killed the people in the house where the door was open because they were foolish enough to leave the door open and it's because of that idea that they're projecting onto them that it's their own fault for trusting people for loving people for welcoming people for not being paranoid for not keeping their guard up so then by projection we imagine that this is a person who would hate himself for that that this is a person who would say if i was stupid enough to trust a human being and not have my guard up and let somebody in well then i deserve everything that happens to me right so you imagine a person who has been hurt by someone and feels that human relationships are a stupid vulnerability that one should not have one should not allow and uh, and that was kind of that that's very interesting how that figures into the fantasies that come out when they're hunting and prowling and and they project onto individuals the that weakness that they would feel if they had left so because i think that point about that it almost seems this offender might have known the passcode to get into this house is very interesting we haven't really talked about it but that's something that comes up a lot in discussion of this case and I, i'm curious and what do you think about that idea that he may have just been able to stroll right in that or well i'm all, that's certainly possible um it, it was passed around and probably written down somewhere uh but again we don't have that information but it also could be that he was he uh, the back of the house where the screen was out could could he have gotten in there and that would get to some idea of how big he was. Um, yes. Again, these are all profile characteristics that we would normally try to work on when you had sure. the, the uh, case information. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, sure. But he must have been strong, Chris. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and not in, a, not, la not in a laughing manner for me. I'm just, you know, that's yeah. kind of a tension reliever, right? You know, just kind of like... Yeah, I mean, the, the blitzkrieg aspect of this, uh, you know, to control, yeah. um, well, well, you know, but, and I think people forget, though, once the first two victims uh, have been taken out, it's easier to control the next two uh, because you've learned, right, from each, each of those first two assault or those two victims, the assault. Um, and then, um, and we don't know what the order was and we don't know. And when we talk about, you know, from an investigative aspect, we talk about, you know, one of the victims had more wounds than the other victim. Uh, but we also mm. don't know if they were together and who was, you know, was someone closer to the suspect as he approached the room and immediately began his blitzkrieg. So that that first individual would have potentially more, you know, wounds. But then the aspect of that, to your point earlier, Dr. Burgess, is is it a correlation in relationship to that target? And then the second person was just kind of in the way and I had to do that as well. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. So, um, OK, so let's jump into I've got two questions towards the end, but I want you to take some of the. Uh, audiences questions if you're still comfortable with that um, and so everybody thank you for your patience 
Uh, now there's a couple of comments in here and then donations. So I'll, I'll just kind of, as you're answering, I'll put some of the donations. So please forgive me. And everybody, thank you. If I've missed something, it is not on purpose. Forgive me. Uh, but uh, here's more of a comment here for you, Doc. Uh, I could listen to Dr. Carey all day long. He is filled with sick knowledge. I agree. And I try being in there. <laughs> okay, this one is: Was it premeditated, in your opinions? And and as we go through this, maybe we can just kind of hit these because there really is a a, a lot of questions uh, pounding away here. So, uh, well, I'll be real quick. I say yes. Okay, Gary, Dean. Yes. Okay. Um. Opportunistic or voyeurism? Well, I think the, the problem, you know, putting it, wording it that way, um, you know, if we're following along, especially with what Dr. Gary's been talking about in relationship to these mass murders, but I think voyeurism would have been something that he was doing. Um, but I think on this particular night, is it possible that he was being voyeuristic and something led to it? But I think you have to go back to what Greg was saying earlier. There are stressors and there is a trigger. And we don't know what the combination of those two were, but that's the key as to why that night and why in that manner, you know, at that moment. So there are things that build over a period of time that he's very much aware of. And then something happened um, in close proximity to that. I mean, we see that in these cases that we look at all the time, that the combination of those two things. And it may not be something that, you know, hindsight, having all the information, we go, oh, well, that makes sense. But at the time, looking at it from the outside, you don't always understand what were the stressors that were building up. And to him, and that's the key. It's to him was the trigger, not necessarily it would trigger someone else. Uh, that's my thought. Okay. Uh, what's the average guesstimate of time before tension starts to build again? If this were the, if this were first time from uh, Cherry, and thank you for that question. Is there an average amount of time that you go? If if this is someone who is going to go on to be a serial killer, there would be a cooling off period uh, after the offense. And um, I have looked at this and I can tell you that there are cases in which the cooling off period is as low as a month. Uh, but there are also offenders where the cooling off period can be years, uh, like in the case of BTK that we've mentioned a few times. So, But the average tends to be a little bit closer to like less than a year. Uh, you don't tend to see people doing that like BTK did. Uh, and um, so that I think, you know, the next year or so would be a scary time in terms of the possibility of this person offending again. Um, but if this is somebody who goes on to be a serial killer, what I think we're going to see is, is it's not somebody who's going to do it in Moscow, Idaho. I think it would be somebody that would target very randomly somewhere else, because the whole point is to convey that godlike feeling of I can strike anywhere. Uh, and, um, and I can tell you and, and can tell you and Dean can tell you that um, the, these offenders can can survey a home and a group of people or a person for a very long time. There are serial killers like Israel Keys, uh, 
that that surveyed places for years uh with the idea of being it added to that godlike feeling of it comes when it comes like a thunderclap uh and um so you know but but i wouldn't be surprised uh if it were somewhere totally random if it if it did happen again uh and um i'd be looking at the next year interesting uh do you think it's a local someone or out of state if you know well, I, I've already said, I think that it's someone that's very comfortable with the area. Either they live there, went to school there, whatever. Um, and then it's not very far. I, they're so close to Washington, state of Washington, I understand. It's only like eight miles to the university over there. So um, I, if it's out of state, I don't think it's out of state very far. Okay. Dr. G, this one's for you as well. And Ann, you can jump in if needed. Uh uh, is this individual introverted or, and are people weary of him? That's a really good question. I like that. Question. Well, <laughs> I, I think there are elements here that suggest a more psychopathic individual and psychopathic people tend to be a little fearless and kind of able to do things. The rest of us would find kind of scary or probably would worry about doing. Um, but I do think that when this person attempts to engage others, they are weird I'm not sure it's introversion. I just think that they're odd uh, and uh, a little too regimented, peculiar, would probably make remarks that were off-putting. In fact, one of the things I'm very interested in in cases like this is when the offender is identified, uh, dead or alive, is to find out if they've had any previous criminal history, which is very common, as I mentioned, in mass murders. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if it were things that had that had that interpersonal quality, like getting hot-headed and yelling or screaming at somebody who slighted them in some way, or you know, kind of holding a grudge and then doing some callous thing to somebody that that um, to kind of level the playing field. Because I think this is a grudge holder, and and somebody who sees himself almost like at war. And, uh, you know, doesn't matter if it takes a minute or a year, they're going to level the playing field. So so I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if this is not an introverted person, but an isolated person and a person who who is very angry. Interesting. And uh, and Dean on this one. Yeah, I, I would agree that certainly the anger has to be there. Uh, you, people don't kill enough. But I also think he has a, a criminal history, not necessarily mm -hmm. murder, but certainly it could be um, fel uh, it, it could be uh, sexual essays. It could be mm -hmm. a variety of um, types of crimes. And then and it's working his way up. Why not the two survivors? Uh, why not oh, the two that's a great question. Yeah. Um, first of all, we don't know the inside of the house to know how easy would it have been to be able to get to that. Second of all, it could have been locked. Uh, third of all, it could have been exhausted. But it doesn't make sense that he wouldn't go in there first. But again, they've got these two doors. And I still, in my mind, don't have how this house really works. So uh, those are just some suggestions, but I'm, I'm sure uh, Dean or Gary have other suggestions. Well, I was going to say, I think there's a couple of different things. That layout of that house is kind of interesting because you think from one side, it looks like what's three story. From the other side, it looks like it's two story. And it's because it's built there on the side of the hill and everything. So I, I think, yes, where where he came into the house, uh, the the 
the order in which he did things is going to be a factor to it. And, and Andy, your point, he's tired. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think this is, this is not, you know, this is going to take some, 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 exo- you know, it'll put an exhaustion level to him as well. And to keep that up and sustain that long-term. And I think we also don't know what, what if any um, defense was, was measured against him. You know, we don't know the inside. We don't know the victims. You know, we, we see cases sometimes where we look at, you know, you can tell from the autopsy, uh, even though it's a, it's a knife, uh, you know, wounds and all those things, there's all kinds of defensive wounds. And you know that this was an incredible struggle. And then you look at another crime scene and, and, and you sit back and go, there's a lot of stab wounds, but there's not really any uh, defense wounds. The person was really, you know, so all of those things I think would, would kind of feed into to trying to answer that question. Right. One other thing to mention is that uh, I do think it probably was something pragmatic, like not having access or being interrupted or being afraid of getting caught or perhaps being exhausted. But another element of it is is that if the psychology of this person is like we're sort of suggesting, then the arbitrariness of some people being killed and some people being let to live also plays into the God quality of the individual. So the idea is, is that it's almost like, you know, some got away, some didn't, you know, but because I willed these people to live and these people to die, figures into that for this kind of a person. That's uh, a fact. You almost imagine the person who was amused, right, is amused by the idea of, um, you know, I chose who lived and died. Mass shootings, right? And there's been that, I think, yeah. is one of the like school uh, shootings mm-hmm. and stuff they've chosen to allow somebody to live, you know, so yeah. That's that's a fascinating. Uh, I, I think it's something to think about because I, I can't help but feel that you know that that there's something to the psychology of this person, of of going from a nothing to being God. Do you think he's revisited crime scene <laughs> post incident? I know that's a baited question, but I think it's a good question. Well, I mean, we don't know, but what do you think? I have my opinion, Certainly but I want to hear. I don't have a doctor <laughs> in front of my name. In his brain, yes, <laughs> uh, but 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 Ann uh, Dean, wouldn't you say, based on offenders that have been identified, it wouldn't be shocking, no. right? Also, wouldn't be shocking for him to visit the graves of the victims, uh, or, or or you know, and so forth, because I I think the key to this is reliving, right? That 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 kind of experience, uh, and also to have control. And to be hovering and amused by the idea that other people don't know you're right underfoot. I wouldn't be surprised, but based on other offenders, but I think we just don't know, but possible. Uh, and Dean, what do you think? Well, um, I was just thinking about what Ed Kemper said. And uh, mm-hmm. you, if he does, first of all, he's very well planned on this. And I don't think he wants no. to get caught. It's not one of those that wants to be caught, but at any rate that he, if he was in the area, it would be for a specific reason. And I would certainly hope that law enforcement was keeping a close watch on anybody coming and going because it is in such an odd place. It's a, you know, you, you, only one en- entrance in, as, as I remember on uh, Chris's um, uh, video. Yep. So he could be, I think he's more listening to what people are talking about going on social media, those kinds of things. He's, he's not a, he doesn't get 
engaged with people. So being this is a way to stay very isolated and still yet get vicarious um, pleasure out of watching and so forth. Yeah, I mean, look at the older cases that we've all looked at, and we're now looking at the newer ones too. You know, media is changing, and the accessibility with video out there, you know, for them mm -hmm. to keep a newspaper record article versus having a video that they can go back and look at and see the scene, those types of things may may. And here again, it it really depends upon their personality types and what they need, but they may be finding ways to satisfy that need because they can get access through the new medias. Would it give them a thrill to go back to the grave sites and or attend the memorials? I think it would. Of course, yeah. Of course it would. Um, and again, I hope they're videotaping everyone that came to the funeral or the memorial or whatever and uh, and, and watching that and comparing it. Um, Dean, I'm sure, and Chris, I'm certain you've used those techniques in your in your work. Yes, we have. And yeah. uh, we'll 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 let those kind of set into the window. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, and by the way, this was a comment earlier on, and thank you, Rebecca. Uh, let's see here. Any insights uh, from database? Um, so, yes, there is. I'll answer this one real fast. Um, it's uh, NCIC, obviously, and then VICAP, Violent Information Criminal Apprehension Program, which was developed by Ann's office at the FBI and the BAU. And these are serial characteristics uh, with Greg as well. Uh, in relationship to crimes all around the United States. And quite frankly, sometimes it links into Interpol uh, to where if an individual was traveling, uh, these would be um, you know, characteristics that would be similar in type. And it connects agency to agency. Uh, and with technology today, those um, softwares have developed and um, they are very fine-tuned. So great, great thought, and thank you for that question. Uh, could it be the same individual? So there was a dog that we mentioned three miles away, and what was interesting, well, what's horrible, is the suspect basically took the pelt off of the animal and left the fur on the legs and the head, but took the body pelt and literally skin the dog. We, I've tried to get hold of that report, and they're, they're holding that report close to the best. Um, so what say you on that thought process? Within three-mile jurisdiction, and you said it could have been maybe a copycat um, earlier on, I believe one of you commented to that. I couldn't remember. That's what Ed Kemper said. Oh, well, that's what Ed Kemper said. That's yeah. Well, I wonder if you would be attacked, you know, somebody that does taxidermy. Uh, I meant as the, the killer. Uh, Interesting. After, yeah. And there is one nearby, uh, I, I believe uh, I heard. Uh, I have to triple verify that, uh, that there is a taxidermy right there in Moscow. If anybody in the chat living in Moscow knows if there is a taxidermy in your city, can you verify that uh, for us, please? Um, I just thought this dog thing was just horrific. Yes. Um, I think there was a rabbit. Was a, a rabbit. Um, yeah. Well, there was 
there was a lot of coyotes or there was a lot of animal activity that was killing some local animals. Uh, but this one was specific. And the, the, the suspect even unhooked the dog's collar. And it was within uh, less than 100 yards of the owner's house. The dog was let out about 2.30 in the morning. And the dog didn't come back. The owner went looking for it. And it was sitting right there. It was laid out almost purposefully, you know, to, to say I was here. Uh, kind of interesting. And then, of course, uh, you know, the this other situation. Um, well, there, there's your person working in the dark, you know, a, a, night, a night night guy. Okay, you so know. the great <laughs> good well, Remember, the inversion, the inversion of the word dog is God. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, so they have the, this weird, um, you know, gets right symbolically to the point, you know, that, that, you know, you're one or the other. Are you a dog or are you a dog? So and I never even considered that God. And is, yeah, is this, is this subtle messaging, right? Is sure, this something... it's, and I'm not necessarily suggesting it's conscious or, or even unconscious. I just think it's an interesting little book uh but the little accident little accident of language but but interesting nonetheless uh but look let's put it this way i think ann and dean would agree we don't know if there's a link with this incident right. but let's say we wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that there were because it would be consistent with a person who is going to you know kind of gradually increase the need for uh expression of this uh of these kind of feelings that that he has and you know and it's a particularly cruel thing because as i understand it there was a flaying of the dog correct i mean you could just imagine uh how awful this must have been uh and um you know and again there's that whiff of that kind of weird experimenting and you know that i think would be characteristic i don't think this is a slick psychopath socially adept psychopathic person i think this is an odd guy who would experiment and kind of be interested in things like what happens when I do this to this body, which is why it's so interesting that Ed Kemper, who was of that type, <laughs> commented on it uh, because he's like right of the same ilk that I think this person is. But but who knows if there's a who knows if there's a connection? But Dean and Ann, wouldn't you agree? We wouldn't be shocked if this turned out to be the handiwork of this offender, right? No, and especially I think when it's in relationship to the timing of it. I mean, there's a, the aspect of what it was, but then there's also the timing. Also I mean, within. Timing. Just a, a couple of weeks, I think, was the three weeks of right. this. And it was, uh, somebody was bringing this to the table in an investigation, and they said, "Well, you know, ten years ago, somebody, you know, did this to a dog in the community. I don't think it would have the same level of significance or potential significance. Is probably the better way to say it." So, oh, would it's somebody in the middle of the night at two thirty in the morning and just happens to come yeah. across a dog and do this and does this. That's really, uh, you know, that, that's, yeah. really and some offenders talk about putting dogs down because they bark and could lead to their detection, like voyeurs and things like that. Sometimes eliminate a pet for that reason, uh, but but this the the viciousness and the cruelty of it is some kind of obvious expression of something psychological. The person, this is not a practical. Let me get rid of the barking dog kind of a thing but it does it, if it were a connection it does make one wonder about surveying other houses and looking for places that are easy to gets right back to that point about 
looking for the place with the open door, you know. Uh, but but I but I think it may be a red herring, you know. We don't know yet. It's an interesting. What do you think, too, Terry? Yeah. What do you think about the? Because now, wasn't there a dog in the property, Chris? Yes, and, have, and, right? and, the, and dog, the dog wasn't. And we're understanding the dog wasn't injured. Well, so, yeah, the dog wasn't. We don't know what the circumstances are around the dog, in terms of being in the house or but something. But there's been no indication that the dog was killed, though, right? No, the dog was not killed, and the so dog. So going was back to what you said earlier, Gary, about you know, the possibility of victims, you know, some being chosen, some not being chosen. You're, here it is again, potentially, if that is a connection. I don't always have to kill the dogs. I can, you know, I can leave some and it's back to that same kind of thought. Yeah. 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 So this question, oh, did you want to say something, Ann? I'm sorry. No, no. Okay. I think that's great. Could you please explain what Ellie meant? Uh, they have a pattern. Is it? I have no idea. Does, does it have any more context? A pattern? No, the uh, Ellie. So they're in the press release. They say, you know, we don't have a suspect at this time. These individuals are not involved. That's kind of a word salad, right? Mm -hmm. And then simultaneously, there's a correlation to we have a pattern of some sort. So there, they must be on to something that they're not talking about and their focus right now is clearly on finding the uh, white Hyundai Elantra uh, car vehicle. And there's a lot of speculation, but I don't think we have the details uh, to that information right now currently. So uh, that's a great question and thank you for asking that, but uh, maybe a pattern of movement, uh, it could be, but. I don't think we know. I don't think we know currently at this point. Uh, observed a pattern. Okay, so observed a pattern. Thank you for putting that uh, correctly. So apparently they saw consistency in relationship to the flow of the incident um, is basically what they're hinting to. So uh, let's see here. Here's one. Could it be a sociopath personality? Doctors? Very easily. Yeah. <laughs> Very easily. But, but the interesting thing about that is if this is somebody with some degree of, well, I would say, psychopathy, um, we would expect some criminality and kind of delinquent behavior across the lifespan, which could help uh, in terms of history and this individual and things that might have happened in the juvenile years uh so that it's it's an interesting question uh if this is a psychopathic personality this is going to be their first rodeo with a criminal offense there are some some that don't act out until they're older but chances are there have been little incidences here and there to the point and made earlier about that it wouldn't be shocking if there was previous criminal history it just wouldn't be for murder i don't think so your 5800 students in your classroom tonight are thanking you for a master lecture. Uh, and, and I concur with you, Alessia. This has been a fascinating lecture. And we're not done yet. We've still got a couple more up here. And then uh, we're going to get, uh, going to let Ann get back to her holiday celebration and Dr. Picado as well. Uh, let's see here. Um, okay, I got that one. I just answered that one. 
somebody when we had mentioned drugs would steroids i i actually had uh, in fact they just did a a deal on it our agency had a, a domestic where the husband was on steroids but it was a domestic situation and of course steroids can play a role in relationship to a psychosis of some sort if i remember correctly um and it's like methamphetamine. I mean, we used to say the knife went on full auto, right? When when you get into these horrific crime scenes where, you know, just multiple, multiple stabs, stab wounds. And it was because to your point earlier, Dr. Burgess, you know, that you know, that the individual was just under the influence of some very, you know, crazy stimulants. Um, and that was actually one of my, you know, last situation. Do I think this is a drug deal going wrong? No. This no. is not. Do you guys agree? On I that agree. One? Not. Yeah. Doctor Picard, do you think there's a drug deal going on? I mean, I'm not seeing any evidence of that. No, but no, but it is. It is important to remember that we're speculating here without a lot of information. We have no real idea. This is the, our best guess based on what's available. Uh, you never know. There are cases where it looks like the behavior very clearly of a lone wolf figure and all that. And and then we discover that there was some group activity or gang activity or whatever. I think it's highly improbable. Um, but, you know, I think it's always important to put the caveat out there that you never know till you know, uh, because we're living in an era of um, very new uh, kinds of offenses, unprecedented offenses, ones that deviate from patterns and kind of make us have to change our hypotheses. But I, but I think based on everything we know, it's highly improbable. Well, I think that's why victimology is so important, right? right. I mean, if we, if we have a full victimology, and I, I can tell you that the number of cases we've looked at across the country, uh, if I was going to talk about consistency, uh, a lot of these cold cases that are not being solved, very, very narrow and shallow victimologies. And so it's it's where we start. I mean, it's, you know, there's so much information to be brought to the table with, them. you know, as we talk about the public life, the private life and the secret life. So, yeah. So two, two parts to this one. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add that we learned from the, you know, from our mass murder work that, it, it, as I understand it, if the aim is criminal like that, just to eliminate people in a drug deal, you're much more likely to use a gun. And um, then and, and one might say, well, perhaps there was concern about the noise. And that's why a knife was, well, that where you do see gang activity where there's this kind of butchery, it's when the purpose is to give a message to a rival gang or something like that. I do think this offender was giving a message, but the message was, you know, all the women of the world, you know, better cower, you know, in, uh, in fear of me because look at what I can do to a woman. Um, but 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 I but I don't I don't think what we're seeing here is consistent with the patterns and uh, and gang activity. Uh, two reason. parts to this: uh, Do you think he was hiding in the house, which we don't know, or and two, do you think he was strike again? If not caught, let's let's focus on the second one because we don't really know the first one, right? right? We we can guess, but we don't know. Um, but do you think he'll strike again? That's I a scary. That's a scary question in a college town. I know. Right? I know. Yeah, I want to be. I, I want to be sensitive. I don't know whether we want to really go there. 
Yeah, I, I just think it's safe to say that there are at least some characteristics here that we see in repeat offenders, uh, the, in, in, in people that are not going to be sated by a, a given offense. But, you know, it's impossible to say. And, and I think it adds to the pleasure for this person that we don't know that. It gets right to that arbitrariness. You know, when we look at, for example, the Zodiac Killer, but a similar quality uh, because of the, the not overtly sexual quality and the, you know, and some of the other characteristics we see here. I think that part of the um, M.O. for the Zodiac was that in killing so randomly, he didn't really have to kill anymore because for the rest of everyone's life, they'd be sitting around thinking at any time, any place, this guy could kill again. And and even when there were random offenses where they never caught the person, Zodiac would take credit yeah. because it was the idea that, that he didn't have to do anything. He still got the, 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 the joy of knowing that you were out there scared of him, attributing offenses to him so that everything from a flayed dog to <laughs> the next time there's an unsolved mass murder, we could be thinking, hmm, is there a case linkage? And, and, and this guy gets to sit out there feeling like we're scared of him. And his arbitrariness, and uh, so you know, I don't know if he even has to kill again to uh, to achieve that. But if the goal is the thrill of the domination and control in the moment of killing, I'm not sure he'd be sated by this offense. Okay, let let's uh, take this real quickly, where it says uh, kind of break up real fast the uh, crime. The I think the nuances here are if people are involved in a romantic notion and Anne, you've studied these individuals who have assaulted so many women and you still do to this day and you've been you know you're a professor on it you're an expert on it you're both internationally renowned each of you but you really have from a uh, a woman's perspective you have gotten not only in the minds of these perpetrators, but also you come to that table with that dynamic of understanding. Um, so there's this idea that this is, you know, there's a domestic relationship component potentially to this crime. Um, what do you think? Well, I would agree with the, uh, with the writer that, the term crime of passion does to many people imply that there is a relationship. Um, I certainly don't see that here. In, in, I think we clearly are, if there's any relationship between the victim and the offender, it's in his mind. It's not in, in the victim's mind. So I, I, um, I think that came out early, that the crime of passion, I don't know. And again, I, it kind of is a uh, catch-all word. I, I would never use it in this type of situation. So I think she asked a good question. Okay. And uh, Phil, who gave an earlier comment, uh, Dr. Uh, Gary, what do you, you're going to have to answer this one because yeah. it's above my pay grade. <laughs> Well, you know, psychopathy, as it was kind of laid out by, you know, Keckley and Hare and other people, um, you know, part of the reason it's not in the DSM is that the, the DSM is really making an attempt to be kind of medical and objective so that a lot of the traits of psychopathy are things that can't be directly observed. They're felt 
like finding somebody kind of slick and things like that. So that that what winds up happening is that you get this kind of watered down version of psychopathy in the form of antisocial personality, where all that's left are the objectifiably observable traits. But and so I think it is a shortcoming of, of the DSM that, that that the worst of all antisocial personalities, the ones that that rise to this level of psychopathy, they're lumped in with your garden variety, you know, criminals that, you know, knock over a store and, uh, you know, things like that. When when you're really dealing with people who have a personality based and fantasy based need to go out and repeatedly commit crimes to to right some old wrong and play out domination and control are lumped in with that with a person with garden variety antisocial personality. And I, I think it's a, it's a shame uh, where the DSM does capture some of these people is in the concept of the paraphilia, right? This kind of perverse sexual thrill. Um, but but I think it, you know, it, it is missing the proper categorization for people who who are these creme de la creme, shall we say, of of psychopaths, you know, that, that kind of go all the way over into uh, what we're looking at with with some of these kind of really awful offenders. Uh, so. So this one here, and thank you. Again, that was, you know, you would probably stay and write a paper about it, McDonough, and get it back to me in about a week. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I love it. Um, so the, this is more of a comment, obviously, from Mary. He obviously had to be exhausted taking four people out. And that's one of the dynamics people forget. It, it is not... It is a lot of work, you know, I mean, not to be callous, but it is a tremendous amount of, of work. Um, personal motives. We don't know. What do you think? We don't know. Right? It's a personal crime. I think we agree there that it, it is personal to the killer, but uh, we don't know. Uh, at, at, at this point, anything more. I think Gary has certainly well laid out the um, possible parties to all of this. Yeah, I answered that one. Uh, you guys are you're a brilliant panel, and you keep packing the room. There is almost 6,000 people now. Uh, they're, they're not going home. That's the point, right? It's like... I'm trying to get through everybody's question, but I've got to be sensitive to the doctor's time here as well. Uh, throw speaker outdoorsman. Outdoorsman, yes. Yes. All right. Uh, thank you so much for your kindness by saying that. I just want to say this. Delphi, Delphi five years, one sus suspect, five years later. Um, Thoughts on the dog? We we hit that, Caddy Berg. Um, thank you for a wonderful show. Thank you. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, this one was always a tough one. Somebody asked, will we strike again? And I think we answered that early on. Uh, so watch yeah. the rerun on that one. Um, yeah, some of these, I'm, I'm just being careful. Um, all right. Uh, why a guy? Why, why a man? <laughs> the, 
the vast majority of violent crime is committed by men, probably summed up in the single word testosterone, uh, which makes one eight times more likely to be violent. Uh, and that includes animal species, not just humans. Um, but but it's also because the statistics on mass murder make it clear. 97% of mass murderers are male. It's also true if this person turns out to be a serial killer, that that the the, prob the probability is astronomically high that this is a male. And then we have the fact that, um, that, that I mean, I, I don't mean it to sound sexist, but we have the fact that there was a lot of physical strength involved in this offense. And, um, you know, that has to figure into this somehow. Uh, and then we have the fact that we're gleaning that there was some resentment of women, which you tend to see in heterosexual uh, um, offenders who are furious at women. Uh, and um, so, you know, I think all signs point to this being a male. Um, but um, I don't I mean, I'm curious what everybody else's thoughts are. But if I were a betting man, I, I think this is a male. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, females tend to do crimes that are more secretive, like poison kind of thing, or they would use, uh, I, I can't think of a case where a woman killed four people with a knife, maybe with a gun, but not with a knife. I don't know. Dean, you have some? No, I, I would agree. I think that in uh, and, and part of, you know, we don't have, again, we're back to that issue of we don't have a lot of the really key information that I think would would help get us much further down the road. But based upon all of the cases that you look at and all of the research that's been done, uh, you know, the highest probability that we talk about possibility and probability, is it possible? I guess, you know, anything's possible, but the probability is extremely high that this was a, was a man. Yeah, you, you see it in family, you see it in family sides, mothers yeah. who kill the mass murderers that are female tend to be mothers. Yes. Yes, killing their children, okay. right? Or, or uh, you know, they've eliminated the whole family because of something like I can't take care of them or because of psychosis or something like that, like Andrea Yates and that type of thing of killing the children because okay. of, of some despair, mental illness, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but but like I, Andrew I agree. Yates. Andrea Yates' yeah. case, yeah. Killed yeah. her yeah. This is a great statement by Happy Camper. They need to trust their instinct. Uh, and let's talk about that was one of the next two last questions um, and that we have here for the panel um, is what should the public be looking for now? And and Gary, Dr. Bricado, what are what are the post incident behaviors that will just not look right? You know what I mean? And and what should they pay attention to that they could um help their own safety to help their own safety because there's it's a young campus or young young people there's another campus about six miles away western you know washington state university is only six miles away and so there is a tremendous amount of tension um building in, the, in those two areas I, I would suspect so thoughts Right. Well, I'll just pipe up first. Um, there was information that uh, Kaylee was, uh, uh, somebody was um, stalking her, or I'm not sure that's the word she used. So certainly any activity like that where somebody feels that they're being watched, good heavens, that needs to be immediately reported. And I know the police can't do anything initially, but you need to get the information to them and then take 
take uh, extra precaution. The one thing that is worrisome about that, if this turns out that that one of the victims was stalked, uh, we know that once that person is, is eliminated, as obviously all four of them were, that they can then move to another target. I mean, we've seen that. All I can say is we've certainly seen that in stalking cases. So um, it's all the more important to get try to get this uh, this offender uh, where he should be, not out in the public. So I think uh, to answer the question is just very, very unaware of your surroundings and who's doing what and any odd behavior. I think Gary makes a good, very good point on the odd behavior of this um, offender. Dr. Ricardo, you want to dovetail into that? Well, I mean, I, I would echo this, and I and I think an important thing about the profile that we're proposing based on limited information is that this person is, at least sometimes, when not deflated, has a rather colossal ego. And I think that where the public needs to be eagle-eyed uh, based on previous offenders of this type is, is that they tend to kind of want the world to see their book, you know, somehow, so that I wouldn't be surprised if you saw somebody posting something somewhere on the internet or uh, making an odd statement to a neighbor or someone, you know, that like, you know, don't mess with me, I'm, you know, but, or uh, sending a letter in to a newspaper or whatever, uh, so that uh, it's hard for me to believe this is a person who will remain forever in the shadows. And um, and I think, you know, what what has to happen is, is that the public needs to be good about noticing that and then bringing it to law enforcement, because, you know, you never know if this person has written something weird or sent it in somewhere or whatever. Um, I mean, Dean and Ann, wouldn't you say, based on previous offenders, sometimes these people do this uh, and um, and then it gets stuffed in a drawer somewhere in a police department and no one makes a link. Uh, you know, and it takes years to figure out that this person sent a letter somewhere to a TV station or whatever. And, um, you know, so I think people have to be really, really attentive that it's in the psychology of this person to insert himself into the public eye. And uh, we don't know where that will be or when, but it, it, I wouldn't be surprised. I would say people need to be very careful uh, to always be situationally aware and we always teach when we go out and speak to, uh, you know, groups, we talk about three areas that you need to always be focused on situation aware. And that's what you're doing, who you're doing it with, and um, where you're doing it. And if you don't feel comfortable, if, if you get, and you know, this is the part that I think amazes me looking at these cases is when there are survivors is the number of times people say, you know, I just didn't feel right about that or something made me uncomfortable or somebody will say, you know, you know what? They were just telling me they weren't feeling comfortable about that person yesterday. And part of that, I think it's human beings. We have a tendency to project onto other people, our values, our morals, our, you know, our behaviors. And so we give people, this tremendous latitude and we make assumptions, you know, it's, it's fine. And, you know, I, the way I teach my family and, and people that I work with is, is, you know, if you're not comfortable, you can always re-engage. 
you can disengage and and if you realize okay yeah that makes more sense you can always re-engage but why stay in a situation that you have the ability to separate yourself from change your location change who you're with change what you're doing immediately do that uh you know and whether you call it you know, we've heard it described as, as uh, people saying, you know, I had this sixth sense. I've heard people say, you know, I just in my gut. I, I've had people say, you know, if they're religious, say, well, you know, I just felt like the Lord was telling me, I don't I don't care what you attribute it to. Listen, move, change, do something. Don't don't just sit there and allow that scenario to uh, unfold on top of you. Great. This is fantastic advice for especially the younger generation that, you know, you're as I as I told my daughter years ago, you're never wrong. Listen yeah. to your gut instinct. Guys have to men, we have to develop it. We learned that sixth sense out on the street in law enforcement. Uh, you know, it was that just that, you know what, this doesn't feel right or doesn't seem right. But women, you you know, my wife will tell you, you know, she, I'm always wrong and she's always right. And I agree with her. Uh, so follow that instinct. And this could be a trigger, uh, Tina, uh, if if this was a targeted event in relationship to potentially uh, one of the girls. But we don't know that yet. Obviously, the authorities have not released that information. So we don't really know uh, what the perpetrator's whole motivation is. What we've discussed here this evening uh, is what this individual, the psychology, the psychology of connecting the dots uh, with obviously two of the greatest uh, internationally renowned doctors in, in my opinion, uh, in this country, Dr. Ann Burgess and of course Dr. Gary Bracado. And Dean and I have been two flies on the wall. We had Greg here a little bit earlier. We went to the master class again tonight by the masters. They each have books. Please go to the links below. Uh, you will you will be fascinated by the wealth of information. Always remember that the show's uh, Netflix series Mindhunter uh, was uh, put together, uh, part of it, by Anne's life. Uh, and Dr. Wendy Carr is the character who plays Ann Burgess, who is in the upper left-hand corner. Um, so I have a tradition, uh, as always, uh, to give our guests the last word. And now I'm going to, uh, and when we're done, I always like to finish on a positive note. And, and as a young man, uh, we lived in Hawaii. Uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps, so we lived in Kaneohe on the the Marine Corps Air Station out there. And so I play a song called Hawaii. And so I always like to say, you know, we're going to go to Hawaii. Uh, and so I think what I'd like to ask, and Dean, you and I, we talk every single day for hours, but I would love to have uh, Dr. Ann and uh, Dr. Bricado give the last word this evening. So if you're comfortable with that, uh, Dean, um, I'm going to go ahead and bow out. And then... Uh, uh, again, thank you uh, so much. And let's do this again, shall we? Is that uh, all right? So I'll let you determine who wants to go first. Uh, but when you're done, I'm going to go ahead and uh, go right to Hawaii. Okay.
Band is muted. That will never do. That will never do. Yeah. I, I was making all the noise on this. Yeah. I'll just uh, very quickly thoroughly enjoyed uh, this evening. I hope that we've been able to bring some important information to you from our work. That's our, the basis for this. We don't I wish we had much more information, but um, I'm, I'm glad that people are interested and that they're following it and that they're learning from it. And hopefully that there will be some success in this case pretty quickly. That's what my hope is. And happy holidays to everyone. I'll turn it over to Gary now. Um, I would echo that, uh, and I think, you know, especially if you were to read the work of, of Dr. Burgess and myself, you would see that, it, that our emphasis is very often um, on the victims, not on the offender. And I think a, a really perfect way to end this would be to really sort of pause a moment and remember that there are some families that this holiday season have empty seats at their table because somebody decided to play out some perverse thing uh, targeting their children. And uh, these are people who were people's friends and classmates and were there one minute and the next minute are being talked about all over the world and their lives invaded upon and kind of analyzed and all that. And, you know, and I think we just have to kind of pause a moment and, and think about that the point of all of this is to try to prevent even if it's one more victim of violent crime and in the meantime i would extend to everyone the happiest of holidays and um and Anne, to you also happy holidays and the rest of the panel and um i wish i wish everyone well hard working every day I'm stressed out 24 7 babe no no timeouts wish we could fly away you and i go to our favorite place oh yeah yeah make special memories together i'll be your company now and forever Facing away.